How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. But yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd be down for that. Yeah, maybe we just do it. Do you want me to just record it on my own and send it to you? No, it needs to be a discussion. So me and Gary oh, okay. can give you shit. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, that sounds perfect. Exactly. This is his top 10 horror movies that we're talking about. Right. Yeah. yeah. So here's how stupid Todd is. Ready to go, Todd. <laughs> Jeez. Mm. Well, the public anxiously awaits your yes. your top 10, Todd. So yeah, well, I, I did get a message from somebody saying, hey, I'm looking forward to hearing that top 10. Yeah, well, so is everyone. But yeah. Todd has to treat it like it's a damn science experiment and, <laughs> and one of gut. one of his movies is spider-man 3 which is yeah. super weird <laughs> come on fair, guys those, those venom and, like the venom scenes are really spooky <laughs> that, dance fair, that movie is horrific i mean it's sam raimi <laughs> there you go. that's true that's true the doc no. ock scene is is good in part two so yeah that's a good sam raimi horror scene well hello and welcome to the Psychotronic Film Society. Why did I say that? Because it was it was in front of my face. I, I really did do that on accident because earlier you were telling me about the links in my profile being messed up. So I had Psychotronic yeah. Film Society in front of me. Welcome to Cinema you, Shock. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. I'm one of your co-hosts, Gary Horde. I'm co-host Justin Bishop. Join uh, joining us today. What the fuck is wrong with your voice? I don't know. It just does this sometimes, man. And sometimes it just comes and goes. I don't know what's wrong with it. Anyway, joining us today, writer, comedian, and paranormal investigator extraordinaire, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. You, you know. can throw in ne'er do well if you just can't. It's, it seems like. <laughs> Isn't that's that my, like your? That's your, my lot in life, guys. Isn't that like your legit d- job? Like you're like a para paralegal is that like ghost lawyer (laughs) we we sue we sue the sheets off of ghosts that's what we Um, do wow Mm, i like it that sounds like a sitcom in the making honestly Uh, yeah i was just thinking (laughs) that sounds like a really fun job paralegals coming soon to amazon prime starring nick frost and simon pegg (laughs) heard it here first folks perfect (laughs) (laughs) oh man so welcome everyone to week five of the tragedy of toby hooper this is where we really get in to why we call it the tragedy of toby hooper Mm. and uh, we're gonna uh, the way we're handling this series, we'll explain it at the end of the episode, but the way we're handling this series is going to be a little bit unique compared to what we've done in the past uh, for reasons that will become clear a couple weeks down the line. But for now, our fifth episode of what we're calling the tragedy of Toby Hooper part one, which is, you know, the beginning of his career. 
uh, the beginning of the end, one could say. So last week we talked about the fun house. We've all got a little bit more energy this week. I think we're all yes. uh, slightly more alive this week. Uh, <laughs> we're less hung over this week. So <laughs> hope you enjoyed the fun house and hopefully a carnival was enough excitement for you. <laughs> that you didn't we're need all, us to seem excited. Well, you said we're all less hung over. Like it's, we're still like maybe a little, I'm not, I, <laughs> I'm fine. I'm drinking water. It was a long some sangria with brunch, so yeah. I'm sangria feeling, with brunch, yeah. A little bold. I'm feeling pretty good right now. <laughs> I, do, I do have a beer today, so and, yeah. Uh, I'll probably get one later, but right now we're drinking water because I'm almost forty, and I got to do that every now and then. <laughs> got to live up. <laughs> so while working on the Funhouse movie we talked about last week, uh, Toby Hooper was finally given kind of the big break in Hollywood that he'd been working towards. Not not with the fun house. That was a Hollywood movie, but not exactly of the big break because it was still kind of small potatoes by Hollywood studio standards. But while he was working on the fun house, he was personally selected by Steven Spielberg, who wanted him to, to direct a film that he was producing based off of Spielberg's love of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, because as you remember, the kind of shared office spaces there on the Universal lot. Uh, but the film that he tapped toby hoop before called night skies never came to be but some of its ideas morphed into a later film one whose name would always kind of be synonymous with hooper's career at least as synonymous as chainsaw only for very different reasons and the resulting film one that had repercussions that would be felt throughout the rest of toby hooper's career and honestly throughout the rest of his life was 1982's poltergeist the house looks just like the one next to it and the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so unlucky. With their three children. <laughs> and something more. They're here. Sweetie, remember last night? Do you remember when you woke up and you said they were here? Uh-huh. Well, who did you mean? Who's here? TV people. I've never sensed anything like Now Steven Spielberg crosses a frightening new threshold into a world within our own. Its form is revealed. What is it? Its focus is clear. And the games are over. Poltergeist. It knows what scares you. You know, we talk a lot about how Hooper is like dedicated to movies. Like he loves movies, but um, you know, for this to be the tragedy of Toby Hooper, one thing I was just thinking about was that something has to be going good first. And Toby's had a struggle already. And so the, the thing to know, if you're a director, I feel like to, to, to be a film director, you've got to have a little ego there. So yeah. he's, he's probably, already beaten down at this point. You know, we learned from Texas Chainsaw. I mean, he had the idea to do Chainsaw to get to Hollywood or to get the attention of Hollywood. Right. And he finally got to L.A. Like, he was never meant to be a Texas guy. He wanted to be in the lights and yeah. the stardom and the, the thick of it. And for some reason, Chainsaw comes with this reputation of pornographic. Like, it's it's awful. And it just almost ruined him in, in a way to, like, a lot of people. So... Here he is working his way. He's taking these jobs that he gets, but none of them are like 
the the break he probably feels like he deserves at this right. time. Because he's clearly got skills. You know, he's clearly got skills. And Chainsaw made a lot of money, but it also kind of pigeonholed him not just as a not just as a horror director, as many off, uh, horror directors often are, but as like kind of a l- exploitation movie director. Uh, and it didn't help probably that his follow-up was very much an exploitation film, Eaten Alive. But this week, you know, this movie we're talking about this week, it's uh, this was kind of like the one. You know, he got the big call from Steven Spielberg, like who is, you know, we, we know him now as a legend. Like this was that kind of at the beginning of his legend and he was sort of at, what may be considered the peak of his career. I don't know if his peak has ever waned, <laughs> but this has always been least... Steven Spielberg. But yeah, right. I mean, this is, this is Spielberg, like at the freshest Spielberg there is like, yeah, the new up and comer, like still very young, like in his thirties, you know, a uh, long career ahead of him. So this movie night skies, what was night skies? Well, after the, the success of close encounters of the third kind, Columbia wanted a sequel. And while Spielberg didn't have any interest in a sequel to that film, uh, he also didn't want Columbia to make a sequel without his involvement uh, because that's what Universal had done with Jaws a few years earlier. He was not very happy with the results. So instead, he came up with a horror movie treatment called Watch the Skies, later renamed Night Skies. Spielberg had no intention of directing Night Skies. Uh, See, at the time, he was in the middle of making Raiders of the Lost Ark. This is when he first started talking to Toby. And he was under contract to make a movie with Universal next, which made him unavailable to direct the film for Columbia. So the story of Night Skies, it's about a family who was terrorized by a group of malevolent aliens. Uh, They're on like a secluded farmhouse. You know, it sounds, you know, cool treatment. Uh, The original treatment, by the way, sounds pretty wild if you want a really good deep dive into the movie that that was never made named night skies uh, i recommend a podcast called the greatest movies never made Uh, and i think it was their very first episode of the podcast they actually covered night skies and it's and they they got a hold of the treatment and break down the script and everything and it's it sounds honestly like a bad idea (laughs) but (laughs) it uh just as a follow-up to something like close encounters it sounds like a bad idea but it's at least 45 yeah like 45 minutes just strictly dedicated to anal probing (laughs) (laughs) but spielberg wanted toby hooper to direct this movie to direct night skies so hooper at the time he was still working on fun house and he didn't really have any interest in directing an alien invasion movie anyway maybe due to the poor experience he'd had on the dark which ended up being an an alien invasion movie uh, even though it wasn't originally planned that way Besides, Hooper had a better idea. So while he was overseeing the post-production on The Fun House, Toby Hooper moved into director Robert Weiss's old offices on the Universal Studios lot. And among the items left in Weiss's desk was a book on the occult, specifically a book on poltergeists, which was an element that had played a major role in Weiss's 1963 film of The Haunting. Uh, So uh, this was clearly something that Weiss had been using, you know, as, as a research item. And it was Hooper who suggested to Spielberg that they collaborate on a movie about, about ghosts and hauntings rather than about aliens. And Spielberg was, you know, he was into the idea. He was a big fan of the haunting. He'd grown up with that movie, you know, just as, as Toby Hooper had. So by this point, even after having Rick Baker create a prototype for the lead alien in night skies, which reportedly cost about $70,000, Spielberg had started kind of having second thoughts about the film 
so after, you know, he had this rough and tumble shoot of Raiders. And he talks about it in interviews. He's like, you know, I was doing this movie with all these explosions and, you know, Harrison Ford punching Nazis. And it was intense. It was an intense shoot. So we kind of wanted to do something more, more tranquil. I meant to mention earlier, too, that one, one of the things about, um, you know, when I was reading stuff with Hooper, he seemed to have like an idea of how you approach this thing. Probably not unlike what Spielberg was already thinking with the alien side of things that um, you mentioned the haunting and that had been maybe the most successful ghost movie ever made, you know, oh, at yeah. the time. Yeah. And so there, there had not been another one. I think in an interview I saw, he mentioned hell house, but one thing that was different about that movie was that you have to go in with this preconceived notion that you, except that hauntings are real, that poltergeists are real. But one thing he liked about the haunting that he wanted to take over to a ghost story of his own is he thought one of the scarier parts is starting out with the approach of it from science and uh, just treating it like a scientific phenomenon rather than just ghosts. And so you can kind of see that in poltergeist and that maybe even what, you know, I don't know for a fact, but what appealed to Steven Spielberg is like, no, we can take like kind of the same concept and, and use the sciencey aspect of it, yeah. but deal with ghosts instead. I totally got sucked in on the sciencey part of, of this. Cause I, I don't know. I just, it, I mean, I know it's just a lot of uh, expositional dialogue, but it did kind of suck me in a little bit. Oh, and, it's very and, interesting. Yeah. And it helped me, it helped legitimize what was happening so that I could disconnect my uh, suspend my disbelief. Well, well, what you're word. saying is, is literally <laughs> the thing that he said in, in, in some interviews I, I was looking at were, were, was that he thought that it's one thing that if you already think about ghosts as a real thing or something like that, but if you approach it from science first and you're skeptical, it, it, it softens up the audience to like suspend their disbelief. Exactly what you said. Yeah. I think that was a line Hooper specifically gave that that was his, his goal with, with the making of the movie. So Spielberg give kind of, kind of gives up on night skies and because he decides he doesn't want to do, he doesn't want to do a, like a scary alien movie basically is kind of what he's saying. He wants to do something more chill and we'll, we'll dive in, to the rest of that story, probably deeper down the line, I'm, you know, when we cover Spielberg's career or at least maybe some of his genre films. But instead of doing Night Skies, what he decides to do as a follow-up was start working on a film that would become E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Nice. Little and known so, to him, he would still end up terrifying my wife for the rest of her life. She's the only one, honestly. That's scared my two. of me. You're, you're, of E.T.? Cat, cat will. She is not a fan. It, it, had, it, it, it freaked her. It freaked her out as a little kid. So she steers clear. I think we're gonna have to when we do an ET episode. They're both coming on as guests. They need <laughs> to have, we're having an ET roundtable. Right, <laughs> so several ideas for Night Skies wound up in ET, but a lot of the other ideas for it were reused in various other Spielberg produced projects, such as you know Joe Dante's Gremlins and of course Poltergeist, which sees a family being tormented not by malevolent aliens but by malevolent spirits and hooper also wanted to direct a ghost story because he had actually had some personal experience with the subject matter uh, here's a quote from toby hooper regarding that he says i actually gary you do a good toby hooper voice you want to do this quote i actually had some poltergeist experiences after my father died when i was 17 water glasses plates other stuff in the kitchen exploded were replaced and exploded again for 
several weeks, some very strange stuff went on. The experience left me with the desire to do a film about this phenomena. He tells a lot of stories about this. You can find like little interviews on YouTube and stuff. I Here's the thing I'm going to start doing just to the podcast audience and all of you here with me right now. I'm going to stop saying that I'm pulling this from interviews. Just trust me that I did that. I don't know why I always feel like I have to justify that I saw this somewhere. Yeah, I swear to uh, God, I saw it somewhere. We, you don't have to quote your sources every time. <laughs> you can every now and then, but we, everyone knows that you, we've done, we're not just making this shit up. <laughs> You're not being graded, Gary. I always feel weird. Like though, when I just jump in, I'm like, so Toby, the thing with Toby is, is he, he dealt with this. So, you know, like, what you're like explaining oh, you, is that you, you didn't, you did not personally speak to Toby Hooper. Right. I did not personally <laughs> talk to him, but I saw him talk about it. <laughs> yeah. But, but with this, yeah, the glass is exploding. He says he saw that exact same stuff, like plates crash on the floor being piled up. Like he swears this all happened after his dad. He's told this many times. And even like his mom and him, like at night in the house, like he'd hear his dad's rocking chair just going crazy in the living room. And he'd wake up and his mom would think it was Toby in the rocking chair. And Toby got up thinking it was his mom in the rocking chair. And, uh, just just weird stuff like that. He said even years later, he got into the process of leasing the house and his son stopped by the house to check on it. And there was a guy inside the house and his son started chasing him and he ran into a room and disappeared. And the room was just like a cold room. Yeah, wow. he, t- he describes like <laughs> turning a corner one day and walking into a shadow and it was just like freezing cold. So he started calling friends. He said he would invite friends over and his friends would witness shit inside this house. So it was just like a fascinating topic that he'd been into since his dad had passed. Wow. Do you, have you either of you guys ever seen a ghost? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Do tell, Todd. Um, I want to hear. So if it's uh, a good story, if it's boring, then don't bother. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I had some experiences. Uh, my mother passed away when I was 19 and uh, I, there were some experiences that were uh, to let me know that she was on the other side and that everything was going to be okay. And that's going to get a little sappy, but the, the stuff. Uh, Your that mom haunts my dreams too, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't have been able to handle my mom, Gary. Okay. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> So um, uh, my wife and I uh, enjoy going to uh, places for our anniversary. So, uh, and we always enjoy doing the little ghost tours around. Usually it's a more historic city with, you know, Philadelphia, Savannah um, and some other places as well. But one of our anniversaries, we went to St. Augustine, Florida, and um, there's a big, the, the fort is still there. The town is, uh, you know, it's one of those coastal towns is very haunted and all that stuff. But there was a story of uh, a little girl who used to uh, greet and wish well people coming and going from the city. And eventually she caught a disease and uh, passed away. But there were there was a story that her spirit could still be seen there. And they told us the name. I forget if it was, you know. Elizabeth or Bethany or I forget what her name was, but I went there. I closed my eyes. I sort of put my one hand on my knee and I held my hand out in front of me. And I said, give me your hand, sweetie. And I felt my hand go down. <laughs> like she put her hand in my hand. I was like, holy shit. Wow. Um, and then there's a, there's a haunted lighthouse in the same area. And when we first got there, we went and took a ghost tour of this lighthouse and it's 
beautiful old lighthouse. They said, you know, if you've got cameras, start snapping pictures because you'll see some orbs in your photos that aren't here <laughs> in in real life. And I had snapped a couple and yeah, I've got a couple orbs on some pictures that I took at that lighthouse. So it was, it's fun stuff. Have you guys, have either of you had any sort of uh, supernatural experiences? I have not. I um I I can say like I'm pretty skeptical. I always look at myself like the guy um in Blair Witch where they're in the tent and they hear the baby crying and the mm. girl's like, "Do you hear that? Do you hear that?" And he's like, "Shut up, shut up. There's nothing there." She's like, "There's a baby crying. There's no fucking baby. Go back to sleep. Go back to sleep. <laughs> did you hear that? No, I did not hear that. Shut the fuck up." Like that's generally how I am about the, these kind of things. But um I did I did go to my first time going to Illinois. I stayed at my girlfriend's dad's house and house sitted for him. And he said that the house was haunted. And this everything that happened in that house would take like a whole episode. I'm not saying it was haunted, but it was freaky <laughs> as hell. And uh, the dog at like 1 a.m. A part of the house sitting was I had to take care of his dog. And the dog would go to the basement door uh that had the, like it's the door the, the stairway down into the basement he would stand in front of that basement door the dad had written a letter I, I i should work this out better but he had written a letter and it said i told the ghost who was supposedly his grandfather he's like i told granddad to stay down in the basement and not bother anybody every day at like 1 a.m that dog would go to the uh no it was like i remember it was like Three, because he it, it was the witching hour. I remember looking that up. It was the witching hour, like 3, 3 a.m. And he would go to the door and he would bark at the door and growl. And it was super fucking creepy. The only <laughs> other thing her dad had written in the thing was uh, I did tell it to fuck with Wes. Well, Wes was one of her friends. Well, one night Wes came over and I got to meet him. And we hung out. We watched a movie and me, him and another guy decide I showed him the letter and then he was like, let's go down there. Let's go look. And I'm like, okay, because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be a pussy. I mean, that's just the way it is. <laughs> so we went down there and all there was in the basement was, of course, the one fucking string light bulb hanging down from the ceiling. And you like have to pull the string and it comes on and we did it. And there's like a few rooms and I'm like, which room do we go in first? And then the light bulb blew out. <laughs> and we're like, what the fuck? And like we i don't even remember getting back upstairs like it just i just was all of a sudden <laughs> and uh yeah anyway that that was all that was a whole thing man it was a, yeah it was a i've never experience. had anything like that and i don't like i don't know that i believe in ghost as like in a traditional like i believe in ghosts kind of way you know like i, I don't necessarily i believe there are phenomena that people see that they believe are ghosts. I don't necessarily believe that those are spirits of the dead in the way that we think of them. I think that there's probably a scientific explanation for those types of things, even if it's a, even it's a, if it's a science that we don't quite yet understand, you know, um, and that that's a deep seated thing in my own uh, other beliefs. <laughs> that's where that comes from. But um, also think that I also think the power of suggestion is very, very strong. Oh yeah. I believe that. Yeah. I mean, that's how I even look back at this and I'm like, maybe I'm somehow piecing together like multiple things that just fuck me up that week. I was staying in this house, but I, you know, I wouldn't go back. Like if you had never been told that there was a ghost there and you walked down to a basement and the, and the light bulb blew out, you would never have thought twice of it other than that's what, ha that's what light bulbs do. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. right. So. <laughs> but because somebody had told you that you immediately attributed it to a ghost. Right. Right. I could see that. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I've always said like ghosts are one of those things that are hard to believe unless you see them. And I don't want to ever see one. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right. So anyway, back to the movie. So w- once they had settled on, you know, having this paranormal subject matter, Spielberg wrote the script with co-writers Michael Grace and Mark Victor with the intent that Hooper would direct and Spielberg would produce. At the time that Poltergeist was being made, Spielberg was under contract to direct E.T., which was set to be released in the summer of 1982, and he contractually could not work on as a director on another film. There's also some information out there, if you look into this, that says that there was an impending director strike, and that's why Spielberg couldn't direct it because... He was directing E.T. and I don't it's but that doesn't make any sense to me because he was already directing another movie. But he was the, the, his contract with Universal did say, hey, when you're making E.T., you can only make E.T., <laughs> you know, so that's really why he ended up as a producer and not a director on this one. It's got, his fing- it's got his fingerprints all over it. Oh, yeah. We're going to discuss that in, okay, in great detail. <laughs> oh, don't yeah. you worry. <laughs> that's a that's a huge part of the discussion on this film. And another aspect of it, too, just to throw in here, is that Hooper says that, you know, there there is the script that they were working with that Spielberg had worked on with Michael, uh, what would we say, Grace? Is that how you say it? Grace? Uh, that's how I'm going to say it, because I don't really know. <laughs> and Victor. And uh, according to Hooper, that, that script had to be reworked quite a bit. Um, yeah. He says that they had, like, Carol Ann dying in the first act of the movie. And uh, she was crushed inside the closet. And mm. that was just stuff like when they got with the producer and stuff, they're like, man, this is, we can't shoot this screenplay. Like it's not going to work this way. And uh, so he said he and Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall spent quite a bit of time tossing around ideas and reworking yeah. the entire screenplay. Uh, and even including prepping for a sequel uh, that never happened, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, I mean, a sequel did happen, but not the one that you're talking about. Not the one they put together. Yeah. Poltergeist went before cameras with a budget of about $9.5 million, which is another big step up for Toby Hooper. He'd made Salem's Lot for a big studio, but of course that was made for television. And he'd made The Fun House for a studio, but it was, you know, still only like a $3 million budget. So still fairly small. But, But Poltergeist, I mean, this was without a doubt mainstream studio filmmaking. Mm. And the production reflected that this is a big production for a filmmaker who had started his career, you know, in a desolate farmhouse in the Texas boondocks that was filled with, you know, rotting animal parts. Oh, for sure. This one stretched across three sound stages at MGM, uh, not to mention the location shooting and featured more than a hundred optical effect shots. Um, like that, that final uh, shot of the house imploding. That was actually, it's one of my favorite effects in the film because I think it holds up better than some of the other ones yeah and that was created using this highly detailed miniature it was like six feet wide by four feet high so you know pretty big miniature and uh yeah they actually just like it was somehow mechanically able to you know make that implosion and it was created by industrial light and magic the majority of the effects in the film were created by ilm and i mean i and ilm is huge you know ilm is a huge production or a huge effects company the biggest probably in the world at the time if not still so i mean there was no doubt that this was an a-list production for hooper like you said just totally not what the guy's used to is top notch he he talks a lot about just even the idea of having a 90-day schedule to shoot a movie it's just insane yeah 
and and like you're talking about the technical marvel the whole thing is this is this was cool for him he never dealt with optical effects like this uh yeah he he buried himself during this time into special like learning about the special effects learning about this kind of stuff it was like film school all over again for him in a lot of ways and learning how to deal with a lot of these things going on in this movie and he learned it. He said by the end of this film, he's, he's an expert on this yeah, stuff. Like kind of have to be. Yeah. Yeah. But he, you know, it just, uh, it's interesting to see. He, he seemed very excited about this movie, just all of the different stuff. And we're, when we talk about special effects, like the stuff you're talking about there and even like stages with like spinning rooms and yeah. shit like that, which is like crazy. The with, um, with, uh, at the end of the movie where she's like on the ceiling and stuff. And, and yeah. later, I mean, even earlier in the film with the kids, like hanging from the bedposts and stuff that was all done with sets that were on like hydraulics that would spin, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's huge. I mean, I mean, for, for someone like Toby Hooper, who is a very good director, but hasn't really been given the chance to show off what he can do on a bigger canvas. This is a big deal, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the first, like, uh, I think the way he put it in one instance was like the first, like, fully measured approach to a production that he's ever been a part of. Yeah. So with an A-list production comes an A-list cast, of course, uh, starring as Diane and Stephen Freeling were Joe Beth Williams, uh, who is probably the, maybe the first movie MILF in this movie. (laughs) Girl, get it. (laughs) She, of course, she had had a memorable turn in stir crazy a couple of years earlier with, you know, Richard Pryor and, and Gene Wilder, and then Craig T. Nelson played Stephen, her husband. And so Craig coach. T. Nelson, yeah, coach. But before he had become known as the guy from Coach, yeah, uh, he right. was, <laughs> and of course as the, the patriarch of the Incredibles, you know, doing the voice of the Incredibles, Mr. Yep. Incredible. He began his career as a stand-up comic, where he was one of the early members of the Groundlings. Uh, and then when he moved into movies, he initially moved into doing movies in like kind of trashy low budget genre movies like the return of count yorga uh scream blackula scream and flesh gordon so todd there is hope for you yet (laughs) (laughs) i i mean i I always take some notes while we're going through stuff of stuff for me to look up later i'm gonna deep dive and see if i can find any footage of craig t nelson doing stand-up oh yeah i bet bet it's out there i bet it's on youtube man honestly yeah Yeah, because but you know this movie wouldn't necessarily indicate it but clearly he's he started a sitcom for years and years so he's definitely got got uh, comedic timing down you know well it's super weird i I think we've found over the years and maybe even as early as this it's been a thing but comedians seem to have like some good timing for horror movies there there's that close marriage uh, between the two there really is i mean i just watched um it's not really horror, but in the, in that genre, uh, wheelhouse, uh, promising young woman, mm. when, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of Carrie Mulligan, is almost entirely cast with comedians, people right. who are normally known for comedic work. You know, and I think I think you're exactly right. There's there's that big marriage, and we're going to talk more in coming weeks about I think uh, the the marriage of comedy and horror we've talked about it a little bit on the show in the past but i think we're really going to dive into it in a few weeks another weird marriage with horror is sexy ladies and so i you know i know this is a common theme but it's good it's hard to be frightened for joe beth william when she's not wearing pants and because <laughs> you know, like, i mean part of me is like oh this would suck for her also she is so hot you're distracted <laughs> that's what it is <laughs> Uh, cast as the Freeling children, you've got Dominique Dunn as Dana, 
Oliver Robbins as Robbie and then Heather O'Rourke as as Carol Ann. They were all fairly new to show business, having appeared in few, if any, projects before this one. And unfortunately, some of them appeared in very little after Poltergeist uh, for reasons we'll get to later in the show. Other prominent roles in the film included Beatrice Straits as Dr. Martha Less, you know, the, the paranormal investigator, uh, Richard Lawson as Dr. Ryan Mitchell, and then Return of the Living Dead star James Karen as Mr. Teague, who I always forget that he's in this movie <laughs> until yeah. he pops up, uh, but he's great in, in Return of the Living Dead, which is another movie we'll be uh, discussing very soon on the show. Heather uh heather o'rourke like hooper seems to have like such an affinity for her and obviously there's gonna be stuff coming up but the i mean he says he saw her in the mgm commissary one day uh she was just like five years old but they were hanging out there and she was there for some other thing like her sister was uh doing a scene for pennies in heaven and so like heather wasn't even training to be an actress or planning on being an actress but he said there was just like something about her just like the way she interacted with her mom or something he's like man she'd be really good for this role like he just saw something in her and uh so they they got her there but he said the cool part with her was is that she didn't even really have yet a concept of acting um it wasn't you know there were moments for her that you know, they weren't like torturing her or anything, but there were like real moments that he said he was, she was never like afraid of the crew or anything. It was just, just some, something would startle her. Like the, the biggest scene I think that you hear about, if you look it up is like uh, the wind blowing the toys off the shelves behind her and stuff like that, that she got kind of messed up around there. And mm -hmm. uh, he said that she was also, you know, one of the things we've mentioned in all of these other Hooper uh, movies before is that he talks about, getting real anxious to like he he puts himself in a bad mood to get other people in a bad mood you know like to get them into weird moves perfect she, thing to do with a five-year-old well he said <laughs> that the problem was is that she was very good at reading his anxiety the whole time and so even when he didn't intend to she could tell like if he was behind he had like a little something going on in his mind she would start to get upset and then he's just like no i can't i can't do this because now she's getting upset. Now she's going to start <laughs> crying and you can't cry right now. And uh, it's not a just, crying scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's talking about filming the scene, like in the kitchen with the, the kitchen table and, you know, the chair stacking and stuff, or she talks about the television people when they're looking at the, the TV, he says, he's got to get the close up of her. And, He's like, I'm behind like this. I can't come back to this location. He's like, so I'm thinking about that. And she's like looking at me like something's wrong. I'm not doing something right or something's weird. And she's like, she starts to cry. And he's like, no, don't, don't cry. Do not cry. And it just only makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> he says, so like, uh, uh, what's her face? Uh, Joe Beth uh, has Joe to Beth come Williams, in. Yeah. yeah. Has to come in and coddle her and like, hug her and mother her yeah. yeah mother her basically and get her through the scene to like get mm. the shot and everything he's like I, I know she needs a nap or something but like we can't cry we can't cry right now <laughs> oh man but she does she does have a great screen presence she her. really does and the she, chemistry between her and joe beth is it's really great like legitimate like it's a big like part of why the movie daughter. works honestly yeah yeah Another one of the things too, the the Beatrice Strait role, uh, or the the Dr. Martha Lesh. Yes, she is based on. He says a, a legit parapsychologist at UCLA that he knew, um, mm. and he knew her through Friedkin. 
um, because Friedkin had used her on Exorcist. No shit. Parapsychologist. Really? Yeah. Oh, as like a um he he had used not not Beatrice Strait, but he had used the actual parapsychologist. The parapsychologist like a, for yeah. like research for research purposes. Interesting. Oh, exactly. Wow. It said yeah. that you could go to UCLA and that she's like literally like she's a normally teaching like psychology classes or whatever, but she is a licensed parapsychologist, but they took it as about as seriously as you expect. And she had like a small office in the basement, uh, just kind of like what it he sounds like. Um, it sounds <laughs> like Ghostbusters. Uh, Ghostbusters yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had her, he would, yeah, he, I don't know. He said that he, he went and met with her because he, like I said, knew, knew her through Friedkin and, and got her involved. Like he, he kind of based this character on her and everything he saw with her. And uh, he said he spent a lot of time with her actually. And she would like show him stuff. And he was skeptical, even though he'd had these experiences, but this story I thought was fascinating. He tells that uh, she kept showing him photos and, and, and information they'd captured, but he would like disprove everything he saw. Hmm. He, he was just like, nah, no, this could be anything. This could be lighting. This could be yada, yada, yada. And he said, the only one that got him that she showed him was there was apparently this mist, this, these photos of mist, like on the ground in a location and they could put it in a microscope and when you zoomed in on the microscope, he said like every grain of the mist, like when you zoomed in at like super levels resembled a human face. Whoa. <laughs> it was like, oh, I don't wow. know what was happening there. <laughs> so, but it was also through that though, to go back to another earlier point is like where he was also like, this is, but this is kind of the way I want to approach this thing. It's like through a scientific yeah, approach. Yeah. So, of course, if we are discussing the cast, we have to mention Zelda Rubenstein as Tangina Barron. is clear. <laughs> or clean. He's fucked up. Her, her fucked role, up her joke. Her role, is, um, her role is very short. Oh, my God. But it's it. a good one. <laughs> so yeah. this is... No, I don't know what her status was with the uh, with the Screen Actors Guild, but I I don't think did it affect her uh, membership in the um, Lollipop Guild. Oh my oh, God! Here we Todd. Did, what's this guy doing? Is it? <laughs> I was just wondering. They do. They do. In fact, in I think it's in Poltergeist Two. Craig T. Nelson actually makes a crack and calls her a Munchkin in it. <laughs> He does. Uh, but this was it, it, just to be fair, Todd is four foot eight. So this is, yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this was Rubenstein's first major film role and at the age of 48. And uh, she just decided she wanted to be an actor. Like she decided she wanted to be an actor late in life, not quite this late, but this was her first like major role in a film. She had done some stage stuff, but she would continue to act throughout her life until her, death at the age of 72 in 2010 mm-hmm. uh, her last role or at least the last one that came out before she died i think there was a uh, one that came out right after she died but her last one that she appeared in before she died was um behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon oh cool. she has a, a great little role in that it's kind of a throwback oh, yeah. to totally forgot about this role, she's a librarian honestly. right yep, she's a librarian all right so here we go <laughs> we're talking about poltergeist there's a big elephant in the room that you have to talk about when you talk about poltergeist. And that is there, there's a, there's a controversy. There's a huge controversy around this film. And the question is who actually directed poltergeist? Mm. 
So if for some reason you are listening to this episode and you are unfamiliar with this controversy, here's a little rundown. According to Hooper, a reporter from the LA Times arrived on set as they were filming on location in Simi Valley. So they're in this neighborhood. During this visit, Toby Hooper was overseeing the first unit, which was uh, starting to film the sequence where Oliver Robbins encounters the tree, you know, that later tries to murder him. And at the same time, Steven Spielberg is overseeing the second unit. They're shooting pickups for the scene uh, at the beginning of the film where, you know, the kids are using the little remote control cars to mess with the guy on the bike that's carrying the, the case of beer. So Spielberg's shooting that, just some little pickups here and there. Supposedly and then, he's like running out of time. So like Spielberg jumps in to help. Yeah, basically. yeah, yeah. And the reporter allegedly, you know, heads back to his newsroom with a story that questions who really directed the film. Everything else you've ever heard about the controversy of ownership of Poltergeist stems from this one story in the LA Times. So if you know anything about filmmaking, which this reporter clearly didn't really know, then you know that there's nothing unusual about this scenario. There's nothing unusual about having an assistant director or a second unit unit director overseeing these types of shots. That's what they do. They oversee the shooting of less critical scenes, ones that might not involve, you know, the main actors. And they're doing that at the instruction of the director. He's directing them to do that. A director doesn't just direct the actors. He directs the entire production. So Steven Spielberg being the film's producer and writer and a pretty capable director on his own, uh, directing some second unit stuff on the film is because he happens to be on set anyway, is completely plausible. That's not unusual or out of the ordinary at all. So if you're, let's take a moment and talk about what a second unit like really does on a movie. A second unit is often responsible for shots that make up what you would consider the, the tapestry of the film. You know, they might not involve critical moments with main actors or critical plot points, uh, but they're still needed, you know, and a second unit exists to keep a film on schedule. They exist because shooting a film, especially one of this size is a monumental task. And the director has a million little things to do on set every day. And he can't physically shoot every second of film, even though some like Christopher Nolan tries to, you know, but regardless, this is a rumor that still spread. It grew into a legend and it soured the release of the film because every review that came out mentioned the controversy, every single one, almost like there's at least some mention of it, if not a full question, Hey, this kind of looks like a Spielberg movie. Maybe Spielberg directed it. And it certainly soured Hooper's reputation and may very well have ruined his career. Wow. I mean, this is a thing just to throw in there that is brought up even in, you know, eight or nine tenths of the obituaries that were written for Toby Hooper after his death, like just that this controversy comes up, which is just fucking annoying kind of, but it's just, uh, it's just like, why this is so weird. Like the the man is passed and you're still bringing up this story about him and, and, and poltergeist. Yeah. Because the, the implication in the LA times article and, and in the, that rumor, the, the whole story that it perpetuated was that the implication is that Hooper wasn't up to the job. So Steven Spielberg had to di- step in to direct the movie. Mm. Like that's they, without saying that, that's what they're saying is yeah. that Spielberg, who was, you know, 
Spielberg being the great director had to step in and do this for Toby Hooper because he couldn't get the job done. So the thing is, you know, we talked about we've, we, Sin City. Okay, Sin City has a scene directed by Quentin Tarantino. But nobody questions whether Robert Rodriguez directed the rest of that movie. You know, Sean Cunningham directed a couple of scenes on A Nightmare on Elm Street, but nobody ever started a rumor that Wes Craven had not started that movie or had, had, excuse me, had not directed that movie, but maybe that's because Spielberg was huge at this time. So using his name had weight. Like Sean Cunningham's name doesn't have the same weight as Steven Spielberg. Well, Spielberg executive produced so many movies like during, yeah, like, I mean, Back to the Future, like Robert Zemeckis didn't get right shit on about Steven Spielberg being there or Joe Dante and Gremlins or, you know, those two. It's like nobody... Nobody caught shit quite like Toby Hooper did. Well, it, he was the Texas Chainsaw guy. He was the guy who'd made this scummy little horror movie that, that happened to make a lot of money, but he hadn't really done anything that anything else that had really told audiences that he would direct a film as capable from a technical standpoint as, as Poltergeist. And yeah, I mean, the film has a, it looks like a Spielberg movie a lot of the time. It, you know, it's got that look, but that's because again, they're using the resources that come along with having an almost $10 million budget. Well, I mean, those, $3 million budget, those two movies I just mentioned, I mean, literally also do that. Like, right. They, yeah. They, they all have that spiel. What, what Todd called earlier, like that Spielberg feel or whatever, like it, it, you could totally buy that. Steven Spielberg was in some way involved. Yeah. It has that suburbia sort of look the the kids, the, I don't know. There's the whole aesthetic of the thing that like Amblin vibe, you oh, know, right. yeah, exactly. Totally. Spielberg didn't really help matters. <laughs> there are some, there are some quotes that were pulled from interviews with him that if a reporter wanted to go with the Hooper didn't direct poltergeist angle, they definitely could have used these quotes to their advantage. Uh, for instance, and in there is a quote from an interview in a 1982 issue of people weekly. So in this interview, Spielberg says, He's talking about being there on set. Oliver became scared during a scene in which a big clown doll wraps its arms around him. The arms became too tight and cut his wind off. I remember Oliver screaming, I can't breathe. And Toby Hooper and I thought it was great acting. When I asked him to scream, he screamed better than Janet Lee and Psycho. So here, here Toby is yelling more, more. And I'm saying, great, Oliver, look towards the camera. And suddenly I saw his face turn crimson. Uh, first of all, that's a quote about choking a child. Because uh, they didn't realize what was happening, but it. But the the part that I want to point out in that quote is that it indicates that he is on equal footing with Hooper. It sounds like set. they're tag teaming the directing yeah. job because he's calling out direction to, to one of the film's main actors. Here's another interview from a Film Comment. Here's a quote: "All I can say about my involvement overall is I wrote the movie. I actually wrote Poltergeist, but co-authored an earlier draft with Michael Grace and Mark Victor. I hired them to realize my original idea and did a complete rewrite. And all I'll say about my involvement as line producer with Frank Marshall is that I designed the film from the storyboards to post-production. I was the David Selznick of this movie. I functioned in a very strong way. So whether he intended it or not, and I don't know that he did. I mean, Spielberg seems like a good dude. I don't know him. Uh, he seems like an okay guy. Uh, he seems like a really nice guy, honestly, in interviews. But also, I don't know that you get to Spielberg's level of power without being, an, a, without being a nice guy all the 
you know, with being a nice guy all the time, right? It's the hard part <laughs> with this whole story because I want to like Steven Spielberg, and I do. And I mean, and these guys, by the way, are, you know, ended on good terms. But yeah, the, yeah. the thing is, is, yeah, that David Selznick guy, um, for those that don't know, he, he produced like Gone with the Wind and like ended up purchasing like Margaret Mitchell's novel, did that thing. And uh, I forget the other movie now. Um, Wizard of Oz? No, I, I was thinking okay. of another one later. Um, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> the point is, is that he he essentially coined the term. No, not essentially. He did coin the term executive producer. Right. He was very involved on set with films. And Hooper kind of describes Spielberg that way too. Like he's like, well, you know, there was still director. There was still a director gone with the wind, and like there's, yeah. you know, but sure, yeah, like. He's very involved. He wanted to be there. Also, these guys, though, they were buddies. They had known each other a long time. Yeah. They had been talking about this movie and tossing ideas back and forth constantly. Like, yeah, leading like two up kids. To the, yeah, leading up to the production. They were they were just excited. And even though Steven Spielberg was doing E.T., he wanted to be on set just because this is a thing he's been playing he's with. He's a very enthusiastic guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He is. But, but, but it does suck that then he's like... He is, it does feel like there's this part of him that is just like, he wants a little credit. Let's, let's let him take it. (laughs) Yeah. Whatever. Because Hooper, Hooper ends up writing the LA times and he was disturbed when he saw this article and he wrote a letter trying to explain what happened. And Spielberg got irate uh, at the time because he's like, basically he was afraid that, if this came out, like what Hooper was saying, that the backers that were funding these other projects would think that Spielberg's wasting time on Poltergeist, like just chilling over on the Poltergeist set. And he told, essentially, from my understanding, he kind of told Hooper to keep his mouth shut. And and the relationships kind of got strained for a little while there. Yeah. And and whether he intended it or not like the the quote like the one you know the david selznick quote it does minimize hooper's creative involvement with the film like it that if you read it at face value that's what it sounds like and remember it was hooper who had had the idea to make a movie about poltergeist in the first place spielberg wanted to make an alien invasion movie and spielberg may have drafted the original story but the idea was hooper's Mm. from the get-go and plus, you know, Spielberg says that he co-authored an earlier draft with Michael Grace and Mark Victor. Well, Grace and Victor got co-screenwriting credit on this from the WGA. So even if Spielberg, you know, rewrote a lot of it, there's enough of their ideas in the film for them to be given a, a co-writing credit. And then there's the case of a, a guy named uh, Paul Clemens and Michael uh, Bennett Michael Yellen, who were two screenwriters who filed a $37 million lawsuit saying that Spielberg had used elements from a screenplay that they had written in 1980. And I, I don't know the details of that screenplay because it's it's been left out of the public, but the lawsuit resulted in an out-of-court settlement in Clemens' favor. So take that, take that as you will. And also, Spielberg reportedly requested a videotape of a Twilight Zone episode called Little Girl Lost that was written by Richard Matheson, he requested that while working on Poltergeist. And there are obvious similarities between that episode and the final film. 
So the reason I, I say all this is because, yes, Spielberg was absolutely instrumental in getting Poltergeist made. There's no arguing that. He shot some scenes. He helped in the casting process. He was heavily involved in collaborating with Jerry Goldsmith on the film's score during post-production. But movies are a collaborative art form. Yeah. You know? Uh, and, and yes, I think Spielberg's contributions were very significant, but so were the efforts of Toby Hooper. He was the director on the film. It almost feels like there's these, you know, like Spielberg's wanting to help out his buddy. He gets that Toby Hooper's good at his job and, and capable, but he's also like, you know, he just, he's kind of fine with like, that's part of it, man. Just let it roll. Like, it almost well, you know, like, we've and, also, t- go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, no, I was just going to say it. Maybe that's not the case, but it's just like, or the part that you have to wrap your head around is that this is, Steven Spielberg's already Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper needs a break. Toby Hooper needs that opening into right. Hollywood and immediately his biggest opportunity ever is overshadowed by a stupid fucking controversy. Right. And and you got to remember, I mean there are it is possible that while, you know, on set Spielberg seemed more authoritative sometimes because We've talked about this on previous episodes. Toby Hooper was often seen by cast and crew members as someone who was kind of, he internalized a lot. You know, he wasn't boisterous. And you, you, you know, then you've got a big personality like Spielberg's who's very commanding as a director. It could, I could see how that could seem like he was more in charge. You know what I mean? Uh, whereas Toby's more quiet and t- not timid, but, you know, he internalizes all of his thoughts instead of, you know, being boisterous and, and enthusiastic like Spielberg. That's just not who Hooper is personality wise. Well, it's so, so tough, man, because we've, we've covered these movies we've covered now and even going back to eating alive. I mean, there's the moment where Marty Rubenstein has to take over for the production because Hooper just gets in a creative difference and he walks away. And so, yeah. you know, somebody comes on set and they're excited about working with Hooper. Hooper's not even going to be there. Hooper's not directing you because, right. you know, so it's not as if Hooper is without fault, probably right. Hooper, Hooper has had his moments. It's just, it, it sucks. Cause he, he does have vision. He does. He's, he's what's the word I'm looking at. He's competent uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> doing yeah. his job, but yeah, it just, uh, it, I don't know to this day, like, or not to this day, but to, to the, to the very last interviews that you find with Toby Hooper, when this question gets brought up, you can just see, it's just kind of a, here we go. Bummer. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it's, it seems like it wasn't any one particular thing, but just like you were saying, Gary, just a few things over his career that when this happened on with poltergeist it made it seem plausible yeah it made it seem plausible it was you know the straw that broke the camel's back as it were and then it all kind of it the snowball had already started going down the hill so it's here we are i mean and and i'm casting a vote on this personally i think toby hooper directed the majority of the movie um I, i think the movie unmistakably has spielberg's fingerprints all over it i don't think you can anybody would deny that right what i think actually happened is probably in is that I think Steven Spielberg probably brained Hooper in a little bit um, because Hooper is a little bit more extreme. And this is certainly more extreme than most Steven Spielberg movies, but I feel like he may have kept Hooper as a, as a good producer would 
kept Hooper from giving into kind of his base instincts and steering the movie into like a more scuzzy exploitation direction that kind of the stuff he was more known for. Right. Um, But then there are also moments here and there where it without a doubt feels like a Toby Hooper movie. Like the scene where the guy has the kind of vision where he's peeling his own face off. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a Toby Hooper moment. It's a very Hooper moment. Uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you've got the melting face in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but it's, th- there's something about this that feels more Toby Hooper. Like there's something a little more low, low brow about it, I guess, just the way it looks. And, and then there's the skeleton stuff in the in the swimming pool, like at the end, like the way that it's shot, the way that he positions the camera in the swimming pool where, you know, where Joe Beth Williams is kind of drowning in the swimming pool and the skeletons are up. Like you could put that side by side with something from earlier on in, in Hooper's career, they would feel more like. Well, I I got a real uh, Indiana Jones well of souls vibe from that whole thing with the skeletons in the swimming pool. Yeah, I could see that a little bit, but some, it's it's not necessarily like the um, the content. But there's something about to me the way that it's shot that feels almost mm. like it it would it would be at home in like a little exploitation movie. I feel know? like okay. there's there's definitely stuff that's dirtier than you expect from a Steven Spielberg movie. Yes. Right. But I think I think when you said, you know, Spielberg reining him in, I think there's that instance. And, you know, it's all, you know, when uh, when a stage actor goes into film, there's always a discussion of like, hey, you don't have to play to the back of the room. The camera is 18 inches in front of your face like the camera will pick up those subtle things. And I think a lot of that translates to production as well. So I think that was probably along like what you were saying, Justin, like, you know, him going, Hey, look, we've got, we've got really solid characters here. We don't have to go super above on everything. Right. You know, the camera is going to pick up these little nuances and the dialogue is structured that we're going to get a very clear picture of all this stuff. So, you know, I, I feel like if there were, if there were four quote unquote, Toby Hooper gags, you know, there were probably initially eight to 12 and right. Yeah. Probably scaled those back. And I think you get a more solid, um, a more solid movie where you can identify with the characters and go along on this journey. Well, and I feel like Toby Hooper family dynamic is Toby Hooper's forte. Like just weird family dynamic is just kind of his deal. Yeah. And honestly, the, the family dynamic in this is not like what you normally see in a, in a, a Spielberg movie. Spielberg came from a a family of divorce. His father left at a young age, and that that informed a lot of his movies, including, you know, Close Encounters and ET. And and in this, the the father, you know, he's kind of a doofus sometimes, but he sticks around. He does his best, you know, and that's more in line with Toby Hooper, I think, than than a Spielberg thematically. Well, I think I think a lot of the family, a lot of the big themes in in Spielberg stuff end up being like coming of age tales. Mm-hmm. And I feel like these kids are so young they haven't gotten there yet, but the parents the parents are still kind of young where they're they've just passed that. I yeah. feel like the goofiness of the mom and dad, they've just so there's these two there's these two age groups that as a family they're having to go for and I feel like it's a real it's a real mixture of the Toby Hooper family structure with Steven Spielberg's coming of age. Yeah, I could see that. Which and, one of you, which one do you guys attribute to the 15 uh, year old daughter getting threatened with uh rape culture 
by the construction workers in the front yard. <laughs> and um, the mom laughing it off when she shoots right? the bird. Well, you know, I think she's laughing it off because I think that she's proud that her daughter stood up to them because um, Diane Freeling was probably about her daughter's age when she got knocked up Yep. because they say that she's 32 years old and yeah, they say that her daughter's 16 years old. So that would have put her at 16. So yeah. maybe she's just laughing it off because she sees a little bit of herself and her daughter, but sees that her daughter is kind of essentially giving them the bird. Yeah, you know? I, I I also agree that that's probably the concept behind what that scene was. Yeah, those guys are creepy though, and and so to give Spielberg a little bit of you know some of those quotes I read made make him seem like a bad guy, kind of like make him seem like he was trying to take a lot of credit for the film. But you have to remember, Steven this is- Spielberg is a piece of shit. I am just a bishop and you can quote me (laughs) to give him a little bit of kind of leeway. This is a new situation for him as, as a filmmaker. Uh, He was producing a movie that he wrote, but was not the director. He had never done this. And he later said in an interview, it's a quote from Spielberg turmoil is created by wanting to do it your own way and having to go through procedure. I will never again, not direct a film. I write, it was frustrating for Toby Hooper and it was frustrating for the actors who were torn between my presence and his on set every day. But rather than Toby saying, get off the set, he'd laugh and I'd laugh. And if he'd said, I've got some ideas you're really not letting into this movie. Don't be on the set. I probably would have left. So it's kind of a thing with Spielberg where he's like, I'm not used to not, I'm not used to being on set and not being the guy answering all the questions. Mm. You know, he's never done this before. He would, he would do it again later. Uh, like, you know, he, he would do it with Joe Dante very soon after this, but it's, it's a new experience for him. And I, I could see that being there being a period of adjustment where you just on instinct, you're like, I'm going to, you know, jump in on this. Well, you would tell the stories about like somebody would, you know, kind of what you were just saying. I mean, I definitely saw stuff from Spielberg where, you know, he would, they'd ask how we do a certain thing. He would say like, well, what you could do is this. And he'd look over at uh, Toby and Toby would like nod. And so he's like, all right, well then that's what we're doing. Like Toby, you know, what we keep saying, he internalizes, but you know, but you also have to think, I mean, probably on the other side, and this is not disputing what you just said. This is kind of adding to it is that Toby's probably like, this guy just got me, the biggest opportunity in my entire life right so i'm not gonna I'm not gonna step on his toes yeah i'm not gonna fight with him about it yeah yeah <laughs> so the whole issue of who actually directed the film got so out of hand that the director's guild of america had to step in and launch an investigation to determine whether hooper was quote being demeaned by having his status as a director reduced to mechanical rather than creative tasks so this investigation was launched when the trailers these trailers for the movie came out that showed footage of Spielberg directing on set and advertising it as a Steven Spielberg film while in you know smaller letters it acknowledged that Toby Hooper was the actual director of the film so as part of the investigation Hooper was forced to respond and he had said he had done fully half of the movie storyboards himself and had totally directed the picture a sentiment that was echoed by many of the actors in the film and then the DGA did end up siding with Hooper on that and they fined Steven Spielberg $15,000 and also demanded that those trailers be pulled. Spielberg carries that in his wallet, doesn't he? Yeah, I think so. Okay. One requirement of that um, arbitration was that Spielberg had to make a, mug, a public statement on the matter. So an ad was taken out in Variety, but even that statement didn't really clear things up because in the ad, Spielberg said that Hooper had directed the film wonderfully 
and thanked Hooper for allowing him, quote, as a producer and writer, a wide berth of creative involvement. <laughs> so, so it's kind of like a backhanded apology. almost. I don't know. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a really weird phrasing, but you know, the question of who directed Poltergeist still rages on. I mean, we're f- almost 40 years from the release of this film and people are still talking about, it. we're still talking about it, but it has been a continuous source of conversation since 1982. Then a 2007 interview with ain't it cool news. Remember them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, Zelda Rubenstein said that quote, Stephen directed all six days that she was on set. Uh, she said, Toby set up the shots and Stephen made the adjustments. She also said that Hooper, uh, quote, allowed some unacceptable chemical agents into his work. That is most likely a reference to uh, Hooper's alleged cocaine habit at this time, uh, which is a, another thing that some people have attributed to why Spielberg may have had to step in if if he was if Hooper was indeed coked out a lot of the time. And I don't know if I don't know what how much truth there is to that, but that that's another point of conversation when people are discussing this in the last movie is so weird um i did see a comment from one of the actors talking about uh spielberg was a or not spielberg uh, hooper was a huge cokehead but then they said like he drank like 12 coca-colas yeah. a day you know <laughs> yeah maybe they really did mean I don't know. Yeah, that was uh, the guy who played the Barker in the movie, Conway. Yeah, 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 that's right. It was Conway. And, you know, the other thing is, is that uh, just if I could throw in here really quick, an important detail, I think, is back to Ain't It Cool News. In the remake of Texas Chainsaw, Harry Knowles, uh, his severed head is one of the heads down in the Mm -hmm. basement. Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah. And that's very you just important wanted to, that I bring You just wanted up. to share that trivia? <laughs> <laughs> Since you brought up Ain't It Cool News. He's also in uh, The Faculty as a member of The Faculty that is only a background character. So there you go. Now, those are two Harry Knowles, two uh, big film moments. We shall never speak his name on this podcast again. I was about to say, interestingly <laughs> enough, what's cool is there are, what, you know, art, imitating life there are lots of people that would love to see harry Knowles' head on a table (laughs) (laughs) so i'm not i'm not encouraging that by the way if anybody ever pulls this up i feel like this that was a clip that's going to be on cnn (laughs) one day and i'm not saying that i sell that audio please (laughs) little did we know how much involvement this little podcast from south carolina would have in this game (laughs) oh man so anyway Zelda Rubenstein said that for some reason in an interview later, but other cast members have pretty much unanimously come to the side of Hooper. So uh, Rumor magazine, the horror magazine did a 30th anniversary article on Poltergeist, uh, 2012. And James Karen said, Toby had a hard time on that film. It's tough when a producer is on set every day. And there's always been a lot to talk about that. I consider Toby my director. And he also wondered why Zelda Rubenstein kind of threw Hooper under the bus. He's like, I don't know why they were always like, he was always good to her. I don't know why she would have said that, but in that same interview quote from him where he was like, Zelda Rubenstein's a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) In that same interview, several other cast and crew members expressed similar sentiments saying that Toby Hooper directed this movie. Then back in 2017, just a few years ago, uh, Annabelle director John Leonetti appeared on the Shockwaves podcast to promote his new movie, Wish Upon. 
So in addition to being the director of such classics as Annabelle and Mortal Kombat Annihilation, mm-hmm. uh, Leonetti has had a long career as a cameraman and cinematographer. His older brother, Matt Leonetti, was in fact the cinematographer on Poltergeist. Ooh. Well, at least I know now who to blame for the death of Johnny Cage in the second <laughs> Mortal Kombat movie. <laughs> and so John Leonetti, who would have been about 25 at the time, he was a camera assistant on Poltergeist. Uh, pulling focus for his brother as a focus uh, focus puller he would have been on set for nearly every shot or at least the major shots of the film so on the shockwaves podcast when the subject of poltergeist came up host elric kane flat out asked him who directed poltergeist and his quote he said quote candidly steven spielberg directed that movie there is no question and yet The story continues (laughs) in response to Leonetti's statement, director Mick Garris on his own podcast, postmortem. I'm sure we'll talk about Mick Garris on this show. He's directed a hundred Stephen King adaptations, but Mick Garris is, uh, has his own postmortem has a sit down with Toby Hooper. And, and that's where I got a ton of information from. Yeah. And so the, the statement that I'm going to read from him came after Toby Hooper passed away and not long after he passed away, they were actually, they were doing a kind of memorial episode and the subject came up. So Garris, you know, he may not have been there for every shot of the film, but he spent a significant time on the set of Poltergeist because he was doing publicity for the film. So here's what he said on his own podcast. Yes, I would see him climb on the camera and say, maybe we should push in on a two shot here or do this, that there. And Toby would be watching. Toby was always calling action and cut. Toby had been deeply involved in all the pre-production and everything. But Steven is a guy who will come in and call the shots. And so you're on your first studio film, hired by Steven Spielberg, who's enthusiastically involved in this movie. Are you going to say, stop that, let me do this? Which Toby did. Then he continues uh, later in the kind of making his point a little more clear. He says, quote, Toby directed that movie. Steven Spielberg had a lot to do with directing that movie, too. That controversy still hangs there, but Toby is so much a crucial part of that movie. Toby was a terrific filmmaker. I don't think Steven was controlling. I think Steven was enthusiastic, and nobody was there to protect Toby. But all the pre-production was done by Toby. Toby was there throughout. Toby's vision is very much realized there, and Toby got credit because he deserved credit. Yes, Steven Spielberg was very much involved, but it's a Toby Hooper film. Man, it's tough. I, I really do. Lean, I just keep coming back to thinking that it's it's just these guys not thinking of all of this other bullshit in a way. Now, later, yeah, just what working happened, together. They're just yeah. working together and they're it's a it's a collaboration, you know, and they're not saying, oh, the director should do this or oh, the producer should do that. They're just trying to get the job done and get the best movie as possible. Even McGarris's quote that you're mentioning there, it just seems like he's kind of like uh, there's there should have been a like an agent for Toby Hooper there to say, well, normally oh, the producer's the one. A lot of times the producer's the one who's protecting the director from like the studio. But in this case, Spielberg is the producer. But but he's he's almost saying there should be somebody going, hey, watch yourself. It's gonna look like Steven Spielberg's doing this. Don't don't <laughs> let him take charge. Right. Don't let him take charge. Just like you see in every fucking uh, dramatic teen movie or whatever like just oh this guy's thinking this about you you better do something uh, (laughs) it's and these guys are just two guys that love movies and they've been just like batting around ideas now i will say i mean it does seem like a little bit and maybe steven spielberg's just trying to cover cover his ass from getting sued by 
another the, studio the DGA. yeah or the dga so he's just like toby shut the fuck up for a second and uh <laughs> i don't know it's just a complicated situation i don't think that I, I I don't I think it was probably as simple as these were two guys just having fun making a movie, not thinking at all about the consequences that were going to come from it and uh, dealing with it afterwards. Right. The the annoying part for me here is is that what happens with Toby Hooper that that I think it's important people understand is that at this time in his life he is dealing with he had been accused of being like the most devious of shitty filmmakers like just with texas chainsaw just like you just wrote and made like bullshit cinema by the time this movie comes out actually uh based on everything i can find the lawsuits had wrapped up that we talked about all before with on the like, texas chainsaw the texas chainsaw stuff okay like all that was clearing up like those things were rounding out texas chainsaw was starting to be appreciated around this time uh, mostly like it, I mean, it was getting re-released in like drive-ins and uh it, it had gotten finally approved and i remember in france and like it came out it like made more money than superman or something i remember on the uh Texas like Chainsaw first showing more than yeah superman like, in france yeah and it, wow. it, it was just yeah. it was insane like texas texas chainsaw just since since you mentioned that is just it is possibly the most profitable independent film of all time nobody knows because nobody knows because the records were shit yeah you can't and just ask money was being laundered or mafia to like, you can't just ask them to open their books and show right. you but it's quite possible that it was the most profitable independent film of all time it's mm -hmm. pretty heavily likely that it was but but nobody knows and so he went from making this movie that is just now starting in 82 to become like a well-known name for a horror movie and a well-appreciated name but at the time he's making this movie it's like it's right in that period where it's like going from this movie was porno to like this movie is a classic Right. And, uh, it's if, being reassessed. Not, I mean, it was very popular when it first came out, but I think what you mean is it's kind of being re reassessed as, as seen as more than just a quick buck horror movie, like that it is actually legitimately a, a excellent film. Right, right. So here's this guy who thinks that he he's, he's taking, obviously we're talking about just from this controversy, Toby Hooper is not going to have things work out well for him. People are not going to truly appreciate him, but he's a guy who's definitely probably produced like on two movies made classics and over a hundred million dollars on like the money that's going to like come in for these movies. And he's still, because of this shit that he keeps having to deal with is going to be the guy that's continuously going to be asked to prove yourself. Like, yeah. what can you do? Like, no, no, this is, this is different. Like, well, I mean, where do you guys stand uh, as far as like, do you think ho this is a Toby Hooper movie? Like, or do you think this is a, this Spielberg ghost directed most of it? I mean, I think you, you, from what I've said, I think it's clear where I stand on it, but what do you guys think? I mean, what, what, where, what side of that line do you fall on? For myself. Okay. 
uh, for myself, I fall on that movies are a collaborative effort, just like what we talked about earlier. I mean, that's generally where I fall. We're in a time right now we can appreciate a name like Toby Hooper. We should be celebrating the fact that there was a time that Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg teamed up and made a movie. At right. the end of the day, at worst, that's what you can say about Poltergeist. <laughs> and it's like, that's pretty fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Uh, that's what you should accept. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't even matter. You know, it should be cool. What sucks about it is that there were people during the time that took away from Toby Hooper because of that very fact. But it's like, you know, when we get into later collaborations with people or like a, a certain, I don't know, fuck. Like you want to get into like Kevin Williamson and Wes Craven team up. It's like, now we can look back and be like, fuck yeah, that's gold. Like, why wouldn't that work? <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's tough. Like you should, you should appreciate these, great pairings and collaborative efforts of, of screenwriters. I think that, I think that Toby Hooper was the director. Steven Spielberg was just there and helped and people, but it was also peak Spielberg time. Right. And so people just saw Steven Spielberg and were probably, you know, he was the Shane Black, Quentin Tarantino of this point in history probably like where they were just like oh steven's at it again he's fucking shit up in hollywood <laughs> that's an exact quote i believe from the yeah i think that was the in the hollywood LA Times article yeah. <laughs> that was in variety or something yeah uh where do you think what do you where do you stand todd where do you what side of the line do you fall on uh, i think i stated a little bit uh my thoughts and feelings earlier in the show but uh, to reiterate and expand a little bit, I I feel like, yeah, you've got you've got the big dog and you've got the little dog and Roman, Roman Reigns, huh? Mm, there's the wrestling <laughs> reference. I love it. There you go. There it I is. That, I did that for you, Gary. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I feel like there's, um, you know, little dogs in charge, and uh, you know something comes up of how do we get this shot? And Spielberg gives his two cents, which. At this point, his two cents is worth about two grand. So they're going to say, yeah, we should probably go with what he says. And, you know, even him looking to Toby to get the nod of approval to seasoned crew that's been doing this stuff and with everything in the press and their careers the, thus far, it can it can really seem like Stephen had the reins. You know, the part that I thought was how much this would have been exacerbated today with social media. You know, if if some of those things had leaked, you know, to Twitter, to Instagram of, you know, Stephen pointing and telling someone, hey, go do the thing over there. You know, how that photo would have been on the front, on you know, the top right under the headline of every article coming out. Um, as it stands, I feel like any of the work that I've, been lucky enough to be a part of and seen that collaborative effort knows I, I i feel like i know that yeah it's any any it's any idea and every idea but when you've got the idea machine <laughs> as your producer that's where you're going to get a lot of those ideas from but at the same time the director has to be able to step up and say he's the final say he's the final yeah, he's the final say yeah and I don't know that Toby asserted himself. As and much we'll as never probably, know. 
Yeah. And we ne- will never know. So I think if there's a question, I think it's not necessarily of Steven's involvement, but of Toby's assertiveness and how much he projected the, you know, we've, we've talked about it before that there's definitely an ego that comes along with directing and being in charge and how much Toby put that, you know, and made that known to cast crew, the press, whoever, um, I think is actually the question here because look, you got a filmmaker like Steven Spielberg. Of course he wants to have his hands in it. He's been doing it since he was a kid. Well, bro, the, the other thing, I don't stuff. know why I said bro, like a jerk, but like <laughs> <laughs> the, the other part is, is like, I think that even works that same way. Todd is exactly what you're saying. Uh, just to jump in there is that for, even for the cast, like maybe that even like, so, so, the way it just hit me just now as Todd was talking like that, that this even plays out is that imagine you're entering the show hell's kitchen and you're trying to be like a badass chef. And Gordon Ramsay is like the guy judging your shit. And Gordon Ramsay, like you finally make it through, you win hell's kitchen and you start a restaurant. Gordon Ramsay approves and you're there. You're in the big time. Like you've got a restaurant like yep. you're the man, but the day that Gordon Ramsay comes in and is like hanging out in the kitchen, like kind of guiding, like walking along and like just checking things out, even the staff, the customers, everybody, like they're going to be like, I was in the place that Gordon Ramsay was at. Yeah. <laughs> Gordon Ramsay, so- Gordon Ramsay was the chef. Right. Yeah. Gordon Ramsay was there. Even if Gordon Ramsay's just trying to be like, I'm just checking things out. Yeah. And uh, you know, like maybe I've got some advice here or there. Even if you were like the the, the dude who won Hell's Kitchen, you're just you're still gonna play second fiddle to Gordon Ramsay being in the building. Right. Well, so to me, the question of whether this is truly a Toby Hooper film boils down to I think the tone of the film. Because mm. it is Yes, it looks and has moment. It has has elements of that are familiar with like a Spielberg film, but first of all, it's a balls to the wall horror film, which Steven Spielberg has never done. He's had elements of horror in his movies, but he, he's not a horror movie director. Uh, but more than that, unless I think you count it's, ET. Well, unless unless either of your wives <laughs> uh, discuss ET, right? Uh, but but even more than that, this is a satire of like suburban life of the American dream. And Steven Spielberg, first of all, he doesn't do satire. He is a great filmmaker. Spielberg is possibly one of the greatest. I mean, definitely one of the greatest who will ever live, but he doesn't do satire. He is a sincere filmmaker. When he makes a movie, like he, you know what it's about. There's no, there's no subversiveness. There's nothing. There's not a hidden message lying under it. Like when he's talking about, you know, when he makes a saving private Ryan, it's about the exact experience that these soldiers are having. Right. You know, poltergeist though, is it is a satire and it's a movie that quite literally equates the television with evil. Uh, It begins and ends with an image of a television at the beginning. It shows, you know, the very first shot in the movie is, is Carol Ann staring at the television or the, it's actually the static of the television and it zooms out. And then on multiple occasions, you see the television, including in that first scene, while the National Anthem, the Star Spangled Banner is playing, you know, which immediately ties together the television with America or or the American dream, you know. Uh, and that's 
that's completely intentional on Hooper's part, I think. Remember, Toby Hooper was kind of a hippie. We've talked about this on previous episodes. Oh, and your perfect uh, suburban life was built upon the bodies of people who have died before you. Yes, exactly, exactly. And this movie doesn't do the like Indian burial ground thing. These this suburb was built on the graves of of white Americans, presumably. You can, I mean, they've got when they're when their skeletons pop up, they're wearing jewelry and you know and modern clothes or modernish, you know. This was a suburb that was built on the remains of an America that used to be. And Toby Hooper, as you know, he, he, it's as a former, like, kind of a hippie. I mean, he's said that he wasn't a hippie, but he kind of was. You know, this movie is very much about how the American dream, especially as we moved into the 80s, forced those. Those counterculturalists, the hippies and the counterculturalists of the 60s, kind of turned them into Reaganites. You know, it's very clear that's happened with that, that's what's happened with Stephen. Uh, we see him reading an, a Ronald Reagan biography, but then his wife says something along the lines when you know when she's first showing him the phenomena. Keep your mind open like it used to be. Remember when you had an open mind. Yeah. Uh, and then so you you know that at some point he was long haired hippie, and at some point over time, Diane got pregnant. As a 16-year-old, like we said before, they probably got forced into getting married. He had to find a job. He ends up being a real estate agent. Turns out he's very good at it. And then he becomes a yuppie. He turned from a hippie to a yuppie. That's what happened. That's what happened to a lot of boomers. You know, and that's kind of what Toby Hooper's saying here, you know, that these guys, they kind of, this new America that is fully built on capitalism, essentially, because that's, that's what... Stephen Freeling is he sells cookie cutter houses that literally all look the same. He even admits that he can't tell one from the other, uh, you know, he's selling a product, uh, but he's doing so by destroying the America that used to be. Well, and just and, like building right on top of him. I mean, there's even that specific line at the end where it's like, you just removed the tombstones. You didn't even remove the bodies. Like yeah. you just, you just were like, uh, if we remove the symbol, basically, of the thing exactly like, they nobody, don't even care enough yeah. nobody cares we enough we changed the, the facade so yeah and frankly it's kind of unfortunate that we have to spend so much time talking about the controversy of this because we spent a long time talking about that but you can't talk about poltergeist without talking about that because it is a huge part of the conversation of the film sadly we're in a specific spot where uh we have to decide which which road to go down on this because yeah. clearly there's deeper aspects of the movie itself to discuss. And yeah. there's also the, the story we're telling here. Yes. Yeah. And, and the thing is the whole controversy, it was very much the talk of the industry in the summer of 1982, but general audiences who were seeing like the trailer as the film was uh, getting ready to come out, they didn't give a shit who directed the movie. You know, they didn't care about this controversy. It wasn't, they saw Steven Spielberg's name. Yes. That's a selling point, but not this controversy is not like national news. You're not seeing this on, uh, 2020 or whatever the hell show was on at the time, you know? So when the film was released, it was released on June 4th, 1982. It got a PG rating uh, after an appeals process because it originally got an R rating. They appealed to the MPAA, got it pushed back to a PG. This was kind of one of the, one of about three or four movies, all of which involved Steven Spielberg that helped to create the PG 13 rating, but it got a PG 13 or a PG rating. 
And it was a monster hit, although not quite as big a hit as the other movie that came out on that same day, which was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. There's your Star Trek reference. Nice. Uh, actually, you. if you want another Star Trek reference, Matthew Leonetti, the cinematographer, mm-hmm. uh, he has had a very long career as a cinematographer, but he did also, he was also the director of photography on Star Trek First Contact and Insurrection. Mm. Nice. Mm. My uh, favorite and least favorite Star Trek movies. <laughs> <laughs> so in its first weekend, it grossed about $6.8 million. And by the time of its Halloween reissue in October, it had grossed more than $70 million. I think about $76 million. Nice. And its success led to sequels. Uh, there's Poltergeist 2 came out in 1985. Poltergeist 3 came out in 1988. That one was directed by Gary Sherman, who we will be discussing in depth in another episode in a couple of weeks. And there was even a TV series called Poltergeist The Legacy that aired from 96 to 99. Uh, There was a remake that uh, came out in 2015 with Sam Rockwell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, Bella Thorne. Yeah, it's pretty forgettable, honestly. It's not if you've seen Bella Thorne. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, but I will say uh, the, you know, they had an idea for a sequel. What was interesting to me is like, I I was so happy to stumble upon some stuff with Toby Huber talking about it, that they they had, he and Steven were still excited during this whole process. So again, this is before that, Probably until the release of this movie, Toby Hoover's feeling pretty fucking good. Like he's like, oh, Texas Chainsaw's getting re-released. It's in the drive-ins. It's hitting in like, I think it had a big re-release I saw in the US in like May and then again around Halloween. And like, so it was like Texas Chainsaw's like starting to be appreciated. And then, yeah, like in France, like it, you know, it's big release there. And so he, he's starting to be appreciated that he's on this big movie, this big blockbuster movie. So he and Spielberg were like kicking around ideas. They had this idea that he, I saw him describe it specifically that it was like the opening scene is like, you hear like a click, click, click sound, like just these click, click, click. And, uh, and then you see like ropes being drawn down and there's like clamps and uh, essentially long story short, he describes it in more perfect detail in some random French interview I saw, but it's basically the national guard is in the neighborhood that this movie just took place in and they have just like sealed off the whole neighborhood and there's a fire truck like pulled up to where the house like crumples up into and there's a floating orb like that's there and there the clinking is the ladder of the fire truck going into the orb and like people chaining (laughs) themselves to each other and they're about to like explore the other side basically wow that sounds wild nice (laughs) and it it sounded awesome i was like what the fuck is this this sounds great (laughs) i wonder why they didn't go with that idea when they finally decided to do a it was like the riders just well he said that mgm like kind of crumbled around this time oh. and uh because the guys who wrote or co-wrote this the uh, michael grace and mark they Victor, picked it they, back up and ran with it for like poltergeist too right 
right. they they ended up like taking their their ideas and like we'll just build on this we'll go with like a hey i think he said like a jim jones cult idea let's move into part yeah. two they've got the old was, man the old reverend kane the creepy old man in the second one yeah um, and so yeah. for for hooper he was saying that like mgm crumbled like around this time and spielberg was out and he was like well then fuck it like i'm not i'm not, I'm not in either yeah and so but That's that was he was like we had we had like storied it out like we were going into like a scientific he was like maybe it was ambitious but he was like that's that's what we thought it was the next the next stage was like a scientific exploration of the other side that's kind of <laughs> cool i mean poltergeist 2 as it exists is fine i mean it's it's got some good stuff in it uh it's got some really gnarly creature work uh hr giger actually designed some of the creatures in that and it's, I mean, it's worth checking out. Polter, I watched it a few days ago because I. Oh, that I priest guy is super fucking creepy. He's super creepy, yeah. But yeah, some of the some of the creature design and and practical effects, especially in the last like act of the movie, are pretty damn cool. I mean, other than that, the movie's it's it doesn't hold a candle to the first one. It's not nearly as well directed, but it's a it's an all right sequel. The third one is. A, a little i haven't seen the third one in years but i remember not being terribly impressed by it it's so funny i saw like quotes from like heather o'rourke uh she like went along because she she stuck with it god bless her yeah um, she's in all three of them but she you know she would say in like quotes later i really liked the first one that was a really fun movie and it was exciting and i only saw the second one once or twice because it made me like go to sleep or something like that. It was like, <laughs> it's, it's too bad. It's too yeah. bad. But it's uh, she was, she, she seemed very honest. He was very yeah. young. So, well, the first, the original Poltergeist was a, not only a financial success, but was a critical success. I mean, critics loved it and it made several top 10 lists that year, but you know, as we always do, we like to look at alternate viewpoints on this show. So uh, I would like to know Gary, what have we found out regarding internet critics on this film? Well, Justin, as always, there are many critics on online and uh, some people that just get real fired up about any particular movie you want to bring up. There's somebody who's passionately on the other end and wants to hate it just with a fiery passion that only exists in the loins of my wife. Uh, <laughs> wait, I don't know where this about? conversation's going. What? Anywhere. Where are we talking about? What are we talking about? Um, no, uh, no, that definitely, definitely when you talk about poltergeist, there are some people that tried to approach it as a horror movie and then it sounds like they were disappointed. And anyway, somebody needs a nap. So, the good part I could say about this movie is that. For the most part, when you go searching for bad reviews, as I do, because it's my job, um, most people are just disappointed with the fucking fact that there is not a good release of this movie. That is just like... That is disappointing, but <laughs> no reflection on the quality like, of the movie itself. No, no, I, but I mean, people will straight up on Amazon give it one star and they're like, what is this piece of shit version of poultry guys there's no special features there's no you know part two and three both got the shout factory treatment with the first <laughs> yeah. one it's like it's a bare bones five dollar blu-ray mm. 
Yeah, I mean, like literally, I mean, I almost used this, but now I'm technically going to. So I apologize to whoever put it up there. But it was like the tagline is they're here, but not talking about special features. (laughs) 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 And so like people are just disappointed that there's no like really comprehensive like release of poltergeist. Yeah, there should be perfecting everything. So but there were people that just legitimately seemed to hate the fucking movie. And I have those. Here's Mark Stephen Tipton. He says, I hate this movie! It all caps. <laughs> uh, <laughs> does anyone else agree that this movie is just god-awful? I mean, it just sucks. It isn't, I'm speaking like he's as drunk as I am. It doesn't make <laughs> any sense whatsoever. All of a sudden, there's a clown fighting a little boy in a tree and then a big gaping hole in the closet. It looks like the inside of a whale. What the heck? And what I was, what was with that kid sliding on the floor in the St. Louis Rams helmet? It sounds like I'm drunk and I just can't read this, but I swear to God, I'm reading it verbatim. I don't get me, don't get me started with that helmet. Why did they choose the Rams? They didn't live in California. I know that the Rams used to be a Los Angeles Rams, but they can't have a little more up to date. This might be the worst movie I've ever seen. If you have never seen this movie, don't waste your money. Get a better horror movie, movie like Batman or Halloween. This movie sucks. He's a Batman? Madman. Oh, Madman. Um, and Why like, when he, he said have, on the... it was with multiple A's, so I wasn't just like slurring. <laughs> Why words. was he so fixated on the helmet, of the Rams helmet? He was real fixated on it. <laughs> yeah. This is right, a movie freak, which we have a, a friend who uses that. Uh, Maybe so. it's him. <laughs> Maybe it's him. This Maybe movie Andrew. sucks. Family who live in a house located over a graveyard are terrorized by a haunting force who makes life for them a living hell and kidnaps their daughter. Though the clown attack near the end is really scary, this movie is a mess of living dead, aliens, ghosts, storms, you name it. A mess entirely. Boo! This is from... This is another, I, didn't even I think every this. negative review should end with boo, boo. <laughs> and a thumbs down emoji. This, this movie is, this, this review is titled Poltergeist, a traversty. Tra- traversty? <laughs> is there yes. an R in there? It's a traversty. <laughs> I've become thoroughly disillusioned with misty swirls emanated from the TV. This film doesn't just have cheesy effects. It comes from, across as a parody of what it should have been. The family seemed pretty, unconcerned. There was a period after period. Pretty. <laughs> the family seemed pretty, unconcerned about the unnatural occurrences. If chairs start moving by themselves across a room, surely anyone would rush out and try to get professional help. At times, I thought this could be a Disney production for kiddies. That he was pretty lack hyphen lustre. The strongest reactions I had to this film were disbelief that the producers could try to present such silly effects. And also I had to laugh at the ineptitude of the acting. This is best categorized as a feeble comedy. What? <laughs> and this is, <laughs> this, this review is from a person named Chandler, who I assume is Chandler from friends, which makes sense because the subject is, could Are it be anymore? <laughs> reviewing the same movie? <laughs> 
I am in total shock that this movie has such high reviews. It was horrible in every way. The plot was terribly boring and worthy of the harshest ridicule. The overly dramatic, cheesy acting served only to make this film even more absurd, which I thought the plot did a good enough job of doing. The terrible special effects, which perhaps were acceptable when the movie was made, were the icing on this already crap cake. They seemed as though their main purpose was to make up for what the entire rest of the movie lacked. Perhaps the other reviewers are simply reviewing this movie based on nostalgia, but I find it hard to believe that it is worth more than one stare. I assume you mean star. One stare <laughs> at a permanent place in the $1 bid at Walmart. I was under the impression that it was supposed to be some sort of super cheesy horror comedy, but even if that were the case, it fails on both accounts. I won't go into specifics on exactly which segments exemplify my previous comments. You know, like I a good think... reviewer would. <laughs> <laughs> Nay, I think it's glaringly obvious. So there's Chandler's. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So I have to ask then, We've gotten the takes from the internet. We've, uh, I mean, Gary, we've kind of, we've all kind of given a little bit of our, our two cents on this, but I want to hear Todd's take. I mean, to boil it down. Cause you've do been I, kind of, you've been kind of hit and miss on Toby. Yeah. Mostly yeah. miss. Mostly miss. I, I mean, you liked, you thought Funhouse was okay. You thought, yeah, Funhouse Fun House was okay. I, I liked Salem's Lot. We're back I, at 50%, right? right? Right, yeah, about. I did enjoy this. I think. Have you I seen think, this before? Was this the I first had time? Never, this first is, time watch? This was a first viewing. Yeah, yeah, really? yeah. Really? Poultry guys. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I think Steven Spielberg's involvement would help any movie. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, so I, I. Jurassic Park 2. Well, yeah, there you go. I thought the characters were easily identifiable and, you know, you could really get into through, through very little effort. It was easy to know who they are, what their deal is. And for me to care about them, which is important, honestly, in a movie like this, because if you've got, if you've got a bunch of characters in peril, you need to care about, yep. you know, and, and that's not always the case in a horror movie. I mean, there are certainly horror movies where the victims are are despicable, but those are going for something different than I think what a movie like this is going for. There's yeah. a horror movie like this, you need to care about, I think, the characters. There's mm -hmm. probably some discussion for later for all of us where, like, you know, I bet there's some discussion about Steven Spielberg probably redefined what a movie is for an entire audience oh, yeah. of people. So there, there's also that aspect of it. Like I bet yeah. Steven Spielberg kind of defined what you expect from a film. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I will say, and I mean, if this is any indicator, this movie, even over everything else that we've watched in this Toby Hooper series, this movie, when it was done, I sought out at least I sought out the trailers for the, for the sequels. And I was kind of like, this was a lot of fun. I'd yeah. I'd stick with this franchise. It was, I was really I really enjoyed it. It's honestly a great concept. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's not often that you see, especially at this time. There were very there weren't a lot of haunted house movies out that were. I mean, there were like I mean, we mentioned the haunting earlier, and obviously earlier ones like I guess House on Haunted Hill, you know, the William Castle movie you could consider, but it wasn't generally like a 
super popular genre, although the ones that had existed before were more the they were old gothic castles and you know, things like that. This was bringing it into modern suburbia, you know, bringing yeah. that that same kind of. And the funny thing about it, uh, again, for me, you know, trying to compare this to other things I've seen, I felt like this was because they approached it so scientifically, I felt like this ended up being, instead of trying to figure out who the poltergeist are and let's, what's the thing that they need to appease their souls. It almost became more of a survival. Yeah. Because what you initially find, or you eventually find out is that the, I guess the main poltergeist is the beast, which may very well be the fucking devil himself. Right. You know? Yeah. By the way, if I could just say, looks pretty fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. Looked really good. I love that effect. I love it. And it was, it was survival, but it was also kind of, like I said, because they approached it so scientifically, there was an element of it's a puzzle to solve. Yeah. And I, which, which makes it compelling as a narrative. Yeah. And again, I feel like when you've got characters who are, you know, sort of an everyman or every, you know, the, the average family, you can kind of sit yourself next to them and be like, yeah, let's figure this out. And it takes, it just further takes you into that story and you, and you go on that journey with them. Yeah. And I think for me, this is, I'll go ahead and say, I think one of the all time great haunted house movies, Mm. uh, I think the way that it's structured is so good. I mean, they, they do not dilly dally. There's no wasting time. You start off with that, that opening scene where Carol Ann has been called to the television. That's kind of a, almost like a cold open. Then you get to know the family and there's this great shot that I think is, I would, I would have to guess is a Spielberg idea because it feels like a Spielberg idea, but where the golden retriever walks from room to room Yep, and it shows you a, the, the, layout of the house which is going to be very important later on in the movie and lets you meet every single member of the family yep and like this one great scene where the golden retrievers walking from person to person it's it's really great you get to know the whole family you get to kind of know their dynamic uh you get some banter between the husband and wife uh the daughter the older daughter you know and then the manifestations of the haunting start out pretty quickly mm-hmm. with the chairs in the kitchen and then which was a great the way they did that was oh the in camera like yeah bro yeah but i want to see behind the scenes bro of that i i i saw toby talking about that where he was he was just super stoked about that one as being one of his favorite effects like just the idea that he was like this was even he was like the i raised this as more like a magic trick than Mm -hmm. an actual effect it was that and he and he and he talked about it like just the we followed the mom. We had like a group of guys there ready to pull the Jump. chairs out. Yeah. Bring and, in uh, this other structure. And, and bring in the structure of the chairs like stacked on each other. So like yeah. we follow her. And so like there were people hiding in the cabinets like, <laughs> ready to go. Yeah. And so like as, as it pans over, you give the signal, they move in, they pull out the chairs. I just want to see the footage in. of the, these guys scrambling in to grab yes. it. And yeah. It would be great to see a great behind the scenes. Yeah. yeah. I felt myself like, like listening. I was like, oh, do I hear a bump yeah. or anything? Like just, but, yeah. You know, those, those initial manifestations are small, like they're kind of playful, you know, mm-hmm. and you've got uh, Diane, Jobeth Williams doing the little kind of experiments and stuff, but then 
shit hits the fan pretty quickly. Like at first it's like kind of playful little things, but the, the, the poltergeist get aggressive quickly mm-hmm. and because it's like the same day, but in the evening when the fucking tree tries to eat the child, you know, that's the, that's like the same day that they were doing those experiments. It does not like, it's not like a slow build. It's just like, you're all right. You guys are in this. Yeah. Well, I feel like an easy thing to do though, would be like the immediate, as far as a horror movie goes, would be to the immediate like fright of the situation and to do like the scare factor. But one cool thing about this movie is that there is the playfulness of it. There is like this initial, I'm just really curious what this is. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of a Spielberg thing because like that, that awe, that feeling of awe and fascination. But then Hooper immediately just says like, okay, you thought this was a Spielberg movie. Now this is a fucking Toby Hooper movie. And we've got a live tree that's going to try to eat a child. Yeah. This 20 minutes into the movie. This stuff's trying to fuck you up. (laughs) Like don't, don't play with it. But it's, it's just interesting to see like that dichotomy, like the, just the, the family wants to play around with it for a second. They're just interested, but I don't know. It's a dude. It, it, I think that that a lot of ghost movies, if not from this time on, at least in this time now, that succeed, pull from this movie. Like if you were going to take anything that like the a conjuring. James, uh, yeah, I was about to say anything that James Wan does is exactly from this style of movie. James, James Wan definitely loves to play with the family aspect and in this situation, he takes it to another another level. But I mean, that's just the benefit of just being the next stage in this progression. Um, Insidious and The Conjuring are definitely playing with this exact sort of yeah. storytelling. Yeah, and I think that as a horror film, I think this is incredibly effective. I mean, it is. It's got some pretty terrifying scenes. I mean, how many children were, are scared of clowns because of this movie? You know, oh. like it's it's got some. And then that stuff at the end is like, you know, with the skeletons and stuff like that's some pretty gnarly stuff for a PG rated, you know, mm. <laughs> horror movie. I saw an interviewer mm. ask Toby about the clown. They're like, why'd you decide on the cloud? Oh, he's like, well, clowns are scary. And they were like, yeah, really? Yeah, and he's it. like, yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, <it's> just like, <laughs> they just are. They are. <laughs> And, and, you know, I already touched on this earlier, but I think it's, it, it doesn't hurt to discuss it further. You know, his, I don't think Toby Hooper's com, like social commentary is on the same level as someone like George Romero, but it's a, definitely a bigger aspect of Hooper's work than a lot of people give it credit for. I don't think it gets discussed quite enough. I mean, before now, I think it was probably most readily apparent in Chainsaw. We talked a little bit about that during that episode. But I think Poltergeist social commentary is even more like clear and apparent, probably more than any other movie of his career. And the ironic part of that is that he's making this for a giant corporation because a lot of his commentary in this one is sort of lampooning uh, 1980s Reaganism, capitalism, and uh, you know consumerism and suburbia, which, of course, you know, Steven Spielberg is that, that's another fact Steven Spielberg adores suburbia. So he's not going to lampoon it the way that Toby Hooper does. Remember Toby Hooper is from Texas. Mm. Uh, and then I'd say the film also has this weird structuring thing that I, I know that Hooper's working from a script that Spielberg worked on, but Hooper did also do the edit of this. He spent like 10 months editing this movie. 
And there's this weird structuring thing to the movie that feel, I don't know, somehow feels unusual and which makes me attribute it to Toby Hooper. And one of the parts of that is that it has two finales. It has two final acts essentially because there's the logical one that's driven by the plot that ends in tinginess you know saying this house is clean they've mm-hmm. rescued um they've rescued carol ann which was all the the mom by the way the men in this movie are kind of kind of mostly useless uh the dad the dad's kind of useless like the it's joe beth williams who's like she's the one who has to go in and get carol ann the the paranormal investigator and then the and the medium are both women, but all Craig T. Nelson has to do is hold on to the rope while his wife goes into the other side of you know into the other side and he and he drops the fucking rope. Yeah. <laughs> He's a you know like a fucking doofus. Well, this goes uh, all the way back to the the six degrees of Kill Bill series where we're like. You know where he's pitching the idea that no no genre films are where women are imported. Yeah, women. This is Joe. Beth, this is Joe Beth Williams's movie. I mean, she's the hero of the movie. Anyway, but you've got this the plot. You know the this ending. The house is clean, which again is not to beat a dead horse, but in a Steven Spielberg movie, that's your ending. Everyone lives happily ever after these, whatever the malevolent spirits are, have been satisfied and whatever was keeping them, they've gone on to the other side. Carol Ann's fine. Everybody's good. But Hooper has to kind of crank it up a little bit. (laughs) And then you get, after you think everything's fine and dad's gone back to work and everything, that second finale is 100% Toby Hooper. It's a fucking doozy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It, It begins with, the previously mentioned clown coming to life and strangling a child. Yep. And then an unseen ghost tries to rape Diane Freeling in her bedroom and has her crawling up, literally crawling up the walls. Nothing that's happened in the film so far, even at its most insane, even approaches this level of escalation, you know, and none of this needs to be there. (laughs) yeah because you could have wrapped the movie up already but then all hell breaks loose you've got a swimming pool full of corpses you've got coffins shooting up out of the ground everywhere you've got a a organic tentacled portal to hell that looks like something out of like david cronenberg's nightmares it's (laughs) great it every moment of that finale is great and it is intense and it's it's a roller coaster ride Mm. you know and it narratively none of it matters but Toby Hooper likes to have kind of insane endings on his movies. Like we talked about that in Salem's Lot in the, the finale of, of, of uh, the fun house is crazy. You know, yeah. like they could have just killed the monster at the end of the fun house, but no, he gets like electrocuted and then gets like crushed in the gears. Like <laughs> he gets killed like four times in the finale of that movie. Cause Toby Hooper likes to just go out on a fucking bang. You it's know? like Thanksgiving with my in-laws. It's like all of it's like <laughs> unnecessary, but literally like everything you just described usually happens on Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that finale is all, it's, it's very 80s. Like you got to end this on a huge note, you know, very 80s filmmaking, studio filmmaking, but it works somehow. It like all works, even though you don't need it narratively because it jacks up your adrenaline and it's just fun. It's just a fun like final act of the movie, I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. When, I mean, as soon as 
the kid looks up and the clown is gone from the chair. I, yeah, I, I'm, you're like, oh fuck. Yeah, like, I let I let out an audible. <laughs> remember in scary movie when they um, I think it was the first scary movie where they parodied that scene, but I think it was like Marlon Wayans uh, gets sucked under the bed, but then he was like poking the clown in the butthole. Yeah. <laughs> And then the clown's trying to escape from under the bed to yeah. get away from him. <laughs> but Hooper you know. says the hardest piece of footage to get was uh, Mr. Rogers signing off on using footage from his show. Oh, really? I like that one of the guys, I like that one of the guys in that scene doesn't seem to know who Mr. Rogers is. I know. Like, he's like, like who's, who's this guy? This, who's this fucking guy? It's like, really? <laughs> Mr. Rogers? You don't know who Mr. Rogers is. I literally saw an interview where it's like, that was the hardest thing to do is get him to sign off. On. I wonder if they got, I wonder if George Romero, who was friends with Toby Hooper at this point, I wonder if he, uh, put in a good word or something because maybe maybe from pennsylvania yeah well they well romero got to start working on mr rogers neighborhood yeah yeah so there's still more to the story of poltergeist we've talked a lot about poltergeist there's the making of the film there's a whole controversy about who directed the film there's you know the discussion of the film itself but if you're going to have a full discussion about all things poltergeist there's one more thing you have to talk about and that's the curse of poltergeist mm-hmm. and the idea that there's a curse on this movie stems primarily from the deaths of multiple cast members uh, in a total four cast members died during or soon after the filming of, of various movies in the series so for heather o'rourke the little girl who plays carol ann the one of the, the star of the movie i mean she's in all the you know she's the one they use in the trailer they're here like that's she was a big part of the marketing and she would even you know, if she had still continued to make movies and even now she would probably be forever associated with this film but when she was young uh, a, a few years after this movie she was misdiagnosed with crohn's disease which is a disease of the intestine it was about 1987. Uh, she was diagnosed. It was between the filming of the second and the third film of the series, which she appears in both of those. And during the filming of Poltergeist 3, she fell ill. And at first, her symptoms were attributed to the flu. Uh, but then when she, she collapsed and actually suffered cardiac arrest the next day after she got sick, and she got airlifted to a children's hospital. And at that children's hospital, she died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction. Uh, and it was later found out her death was actually later attributed to a congenital to congenital stenosis of the intestine, which was a previously undetected medical condition that they just never knew she had because she had intestinal issues. They thought it was Crohn's disease. It was something completely different to where her essentially her insides were just bloated and and she was just essentially dying from inside out. And so a horrible death. I mean, she apparently didn't suffer other than the pain associated with the disease, but she's 12 years old. She died at the age of 12 years old. Even if you see like in Poltergeist 3, you can see she's not particularly well. Uh, She's got like these, her cheeks are really, she's got like chipmunk cheeks in that, in in the third movie. And Mm -hmm. and it was a, it was actually a symptom of her sickness that they, that they, that nobody, her, her face is swollen. You can visibly see it in the film. They ended up finishing the film Poltergeist 3. Gary Sherman, the director, didn't want to finish it without her. 
Um, he just couldn't bring himself to continue it, but pressure from the studio caused them to have to eventually finish it. And they had to finish film the entire finale with like a body double for her. And Gary Sherman never felt great about it. He still considers it his least favorite film of his career. Mm. But even earlier than that, Dominique Dunn, who played the older sister Dana in the film, she met an untimely death as well. So Dominique Dunn, she was uh, she was from like a Hollywood family. Her her father was an investigative journalist named Dominic Dunn. He worked for Vanity Fair, you know, and she was the sister of actor Griffin Dunn, who is best known for playing Jack in an American Werewolf in London. So in 1981, Dunn had met a man named Thomas Sweeney. He was the sous chef at Wolfgang Puck's restaurant there in Los Angeles. After they had dated for a few months, the two moved in together, but their relationship quickly deteriorated because of Sweeney's possessiveness and jealousy. The couple would would fight pretty frequently, and Sweeney eventually began physically abusing Dunn. And, you know, she left him a couple times, kept coming back. It's the the same sad story that you hear in these abusive relationships. Uh, Eventually, she left him for good. In October, uh, on October 30th of 1982, so a few weeks after they had, you know, completely broken up, Dunn was at her home rehearsing for a role in the miniseries V with actor David Packer and, and Sweeney showed up. Thomas Sweeney showed up to her house and she, she went outside to talk to him, probably try to get him to go away. And Packer, you know, he said that he heard the couple arguing outside. He said he heard this is a, from a quote from him. He said he heard smacking sounds, two screams and a thud. He tried to call the police but was told that he was that, that the police that he called that th- this home was out of their jurisdiction. So he ends up leaving. Cause he's like, this guy's going to kill me. If I don't get out of here, he leaves through the back. And when he gets to the back, he sees Sweeney in some nearby bushes and he's on over Sweeney's on top of her. He had strangled her. And he apparently, he said he doesn't remember it. He doesn't remember. He just remembers like he blacked out. And when he realized where he was, he was on top of her with his hands around her neck. Jeez. And, She's unconscious, but she's still alive. She's transported to Cedar sinai Medical Center and placed on life support, but she never regained consciousness. And she was removed from life support on November 4th, five days later. She's 22 years old. That's, again, both of those deaths are attributed to the curse of Poltergeist. Uh, And later on, the actor actor who played the uh, Reverend Kane in part two, he died not long after filming that movie. Uh, but he died of, he had cancer and he was very old. So that wasn't quite as un- unexpected, you know? Mm. And then the um, the Native American guy who plays the shaman in that movie, who had actually done an exorcism on the set of, of Poltergeist 2 to exercise spirits from that set. Mm. He later died. Uh, I think he was having a, a heart transplant or something. So another death that's like not entirely un- unexpected. Wow. But the origin of the curse is said to be the real life skeletons that were used in the third act of the movie. So if you want to hear more about this, uh, I would recommend if you have Shudder, there's a really good show on there called Cursed Films that did a really cool episode on the Poltergeist curse. But essentially the curse, and they discussed this in the film, they actually interviewed Craig Reardon, who we haven't mentioned on this episode, but uh, Craig Reardon is once again a makeup effects guy for Toby Hooper on this movie. I think this is his third Hooper movie in a row. But the origin of that curse is said to be the real life skeletons that were used in the third act of the film. As we've discussed before, even on, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like human skeletons were often used in films because they are cheaper, cheaper to buy one from like a medical supply company than 
just having some like artist sculpt an entire human skeleton, especially if you need a bunch of them, like you do in this movie. So they just bought them from India. They bought some skeletons, you know, and it's set people who believe in the curse of poltergeist say that that's the reason that this movie is cursed, but there's no curse on Texas chainsaw massacre. I mean, it made a lot of money. It didn't make a lot of money for the people involved, but it made a lot of money. There was no curse on Frankenstein though. That used to, you know, when you see, when you see a, uh, what's his name, Igor or whatever his name is, stealing the brain. He bumps into a skeleton in the little classroom. That's a real human skeleton. Uh, House on Haunted Hill, the William Castle movie, that skeleton that floats at the end of that, that's a real human skeleton. That's what they used in movies. It was not unusual. And none of those have curses on them. Uh, I think what happened with Poltergeist and and with its sequels is it's simply a sad series of events tragedies or they didn't were... use dead bodies that were tied to bullshit <laughs> <laughs> maybe if just one of those skeletons was like a murder victim or something then maybe mm. but i don't know i don't believe in curses either so um i think it's just a bunch a sad series of coincidences toby hooper all... even tells a story about like he he got a cramp during like right at the first part of filming of this movie and I, I see todd laughing <laughs> the <laughs> horror <laughs> no, he just had to poop sorry <laughs> but, but but he describes it, he was like no it was one of those like because they were asking about the curse he was like you know what's funny it's like right when we started filming i got like this super bad cramp where it was like for some reason i could not walk afterwards <laughs> and he was like my tendon was like pulled from the bone <laughs> and like he's mm. like i had to go to the doctor he's like i used to cane most of the time that i was on the set of poltergeist because oh, wow. my leg was fucked up but he was like you know i just was like that's one of those things you know <laughs> like people people get cramps like it's it's a weird thing and this is just a fucked up point he did say he was like but i don't know uh, this interview was like from 2017 he was like <laughs> At this point, maybe I am cursed. <laughs> sure, just lean into it. I mean, it does feel like it, honestly, for poor Toby Hooper. Maybe he is cursed. Well, so, I mean, you know, you got to think, I mean, just the bullshit this guy's had to go through already so far. I mean, it kind of touched on it, but just he he has to he has to face some bullshit a lot of filmmakers don't have to put up with. Yeah. So one more thing we want to do before we wrap this up is we got to get into into our segment called if you guys were doing a poltergeist double feature with another film, what would be, what would be part two of that double feature? I think it feels obviously the conjuring or something would work or, or even insidious. Like I didn't even throw insidious in there. Yeah. Especially the final act of insidious. It has that, I don't know that madhouse kind of well, like people wrote it off. Like it's like, oh, it's Disney's like whatever the fuck. I love the end of Insidious. I know I'm kind of in the uh I feel like I'm in the minority on that, but I love the last act. No, I think it's fun. Like <laughs> I think it's I mean it's just everybody well, it's the same I think the same thing that happened there is the same thing that happens when people watch poltergeist now. They want like a straightforward horror movie, they just want it to be like try to scare you as much as they can, but you know. <laughs> At the end of the day, that never works anyway. Like, I mean, 
nine times out of 10, that doesn't work anyway. So the only thing to make it like an effective horror movie is to make you care about the characters and to try to make like a full fledged, like fleshed out film. And so I think that's what Poltergeist is doing. I get it. It's not like, I mean, you're not talking about the exorcist here. You're talking about Poltergeist is totally different level of horror. And it is, I mean, sadly, it's like, what if Steven Spielberg made a horror movie? But it's like, it's, it's like, it's, it's fun and it's creepy in points. There's stuff that looks good. And it's like, it's just, they're trying to make a flashed out horror movie. I don't know. It's, it's so weird. People want horror movies to be accepted into the mainstream. I know I'm going off on a tangent and I'm sorry, but I also last night watched Cape Fear and uh, the original or the uh, Scorsese? 90, 91, like Martin Scorsese. Scorsese. Yeah. And, uh, and I want to see the other one because, you know, on the old show we did uh night of the huntsman or whatever. And uh, night of the hunter, night of the hunter. I don't know why I said huntsman. I think I'm yeah, Chris Hemsworth is not in. Yeah. <laughs> To say, I'm thinking of the Snow White movie. <laughs> anyway, that guy is also in the original Cape Fear. My point being is that I'm watching Cape Fear, and uh, as I was watching it, I just started like uh, scrolling through some trivia on like Cape Fear, and there was this thing that like Fangoria was barred from covering Cape Fear at the huh. time because they, they didn't also want it to be called a horror movie, right? They also did the same thing with Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, like, they didn't that, yeah. want these movies to be covered as horror movies. Right. Like they didn't. Um, it had a it had a stigma at the time. Yeah, like horror has a stigma, so it's it, it's weird. Like there's these weird points where in history, I don't know. It's just it's odd. Like I look at Poltergeist and I'm like, yeah, it's a horror movie. Like it's straight up a horror movie, but it's like maybe they were trying to like you said like maybe spielberg's like reigning in hooper at certain points and yeah but i think like you know you mentioned the conjuring and insidious i think that's proof that there are that horror has become more mainstream now well now i just mean like they're they're like evolutions of what this concept was i think is where i was going with that well what do you think todd what would be your second part of a poltergeist double feature um i think and they don't they don't line up as well as the movies you guys mentioned but when i was watching this and saw uh some of the special effects uh the movie that jumped out to me immediately was um was ghostbusters and i feel like that would be a fun uh you know serious to funny but with the with the with the spirits looking kind of similar Mm -hmm. i feel like all those optical effects and like yeah. yeah, no, it would, I, make, it would I, feel like, like, like yeah. this happened on the West Coast, but in New York, this was happening. Right, right. Like, so that that's the route I would go. Yeah, I like I think, it, Todd. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I thought of The Conjuring and I thought of Insidious as well, but I kind of lean a little towards, I don't, there, the thing is, there's a lot of ghost movies out there. There aren't a lot of, quote, poltergeist movies, which are two different things. Uh, so it's kind of hard to think of another w- haunted house movie that's also Poltergeist. So oh, I just started all thinking fifteen of, seasons of Supernatural or or yes. Paranormal Activity, but I don't like those movies very much. <laughs> uh, but I guess you could consider those Poltergeists because they're more malevolent. I don't know. But I just started thinking of trying to think of some like haunted house movies that I like, and I got to say, the others. 
with with uh, Nicole Kidman, one of my favorite haunted house movies. But honestly, and this doesn't quite work as like a double feature because of the length. But Mike Flanagan's The Haunting of Hill House. Okay. It's one of the best haunted house pieces of media like I've ever seen ever. And they don't fit. I think Ghostbusters fits tonally a little bit better than Poltergeist and even maybe Insidious. But if we're just talking other other ghost movies, or if you want to go a little more fun, The Frighteners. Oh, yeah. I think The Frighteners would fit. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think any the Frighteners of these would, would fit. Well. Yeah. I think Depends Ghostbusters what... fits right there with it. It's like, even if tonally it shifts a little bit, but I mean, that's the same thing with like Insidious or something. It's like, right. Um, there's a little bit darker than Insidious Ghost than this movie does, but yeah, yeah, it's just like like we were talking about. I, I feel like there's an evolution of like what they could sure yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Gary made the joke that you know maybe Toby Hooper does think that his career is cursed, but after after Poltergeist, like I totally understand why he would think that because it, you know. The movie is great. The movie turned out great, but it's all that controversy uh, surrounding the ownership of the movie that kind of undercut his legitimacy because he is a very good director. But all of a sudden, like, you know, oh, it's the guy who made the guy who made Texas Chainsaw. He finally gets his big break in Hollywood, but he's not up to the job. And Steven Spielberg has to rescue the film and come in and direct it. That's kind of how that narrative played out to a lot of people. And it hurt his career. I mean, it may may have essentially destroyed his career. I mean, he would continue working through for the rest of his life, but a lot of the stuff later in his career was straight to video trash. You know, it's it's all he he never he never again had a chance to make a big studio movie like this one. This was it. This was his big break, and he nailed it. But because of that article in the L.A. Times, it nobody else ever really gave him this chance again. Uh, it called his credibility in the question. It, it sucks. And no amount of like setting the record straight by anybody, you know, Hooper, Spielberg, all the cast and crew, doesn't matter what any of them said. In people's minds, Spielberg might have directed this movie. And that never left anyone's mind, you know. Yeah. But the truth is, I think Spielberg is, and Hooper collaborated on a film that is, like I said, I think one of the best Haunted House movies ever made. It it brought the hauntings out of the gothic structures, out of the castles, and brought them into modern-day suburbia. And the genres never looked back. So we're going to be taking a, um, a bit of a detour. Next week, we're starting actually a new series. We're not going to continue on the career of Toby Hooper just yet. We're taking a detour for a few weeks for reasons that will become clear as we go along. And then we will get back into where Toby Hooper's career went after Poltergeist a little bit down the line. But next week, we're going to start a new series called Dan O'Bannon, Hollywood's Secret Weapon. Hmm. Uh, if you're not familiar with Dan O'Bannon, uh, just know that he's, he's a screenwriter and he directed twice, but he's mostly known as a screenwriter. Uh, but he's been connected to more Hollywood, like big Hollywood films and franchises than you might realize. And I don't think he ever, I don't think he really gets enough credit as uh, how big of a impact he really had in multiple careers in Hollywood mm. and never really had the career himself that he deserved, which kind of, you know, makes it feels a little bit like Toby Hooper, but we'll see how those two interact later on down the line. So These boys to, is going to cross paths. Yeah, they are. So uh, to begin this story, we're going back to discuss O'Bannon's first film 
co-written by O'Bannon and John Carpenter. It was also John Carpenter's first film as a director. Next week, we're going to be talking about a, a 1975 film called Dark Star. Mm. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. It's easy to find. If you guys want to stream it and watch it along with us, head to cinemashock.net where you can find links to the stream it and uh, join us back next week as we discuss the making of that film. I think it's going to be a fun one to talk about because, you know, we're not only talking about the beginning of O'Bannon's career, but we're talking about the beginning of John Carpenter, who is, you know, one of the greatest horror directors to ever live. So It's so crazy. I was uh, scrolling through the, um, I mean, for what it's worth here at the end of the episode. I mean, this is from, I'm just going to, I'm just going to read this little part here. Uh, this from Joe Bob Briggs's obituary for Toby Hooper. As we get to it here, he says the talking about the LA Times article said that Spielberg was the actual director of the thing. Um, Hooper was naturally disturbed by the article and wrote a letter to the reporter trying to clear things up. Spielberg became irate. And when he found out that Hooper had written the letter, Spielberg had investors and backers who wanted him working on another project at the time. He was concerned that support for that project would dry up if he was caught goofing off on poltergeist. Spielberg told Hooper to just keep his mouth shut and relations between the two men became strained. They later would patch things up and Hooper would go on to work with Spielberg on several projects. I said a lot of this, but the, the part I wanted to get to is this. He said, but the damage was done. When the movie was released, review after review took note of the rumor that Hooper hadn't really directed this film. Spielberg finally took out a full page ad in Variety in The Hollywood Reporter, giving Hooper full credit for the film and discounting the rumors, but nobody believed it. As late as this year, 35 years later, an assistant cameraman was giving interviews to a blogger saying he witnessed Spielberg ghost directing. And the liable was passed along to the public, even though the cameraman had no access to the daily directorial meetings. Twice successful, twice cursed, Hooper seemed to be the only director in history who couldn't get work even after two movies that earned more than $100 million each. Movies that would both be acclaimed as classics. Time and time again, he was asked to prove himself. Even as Poltergeist took the suburban multiplexes by storm and Chainsaw continue to play drive-ins overseas territories midnight movie houses often on the double bill with david lichens a, a racer head after a five-year censorship fight in france chainsaw open to the oh this is todd this is what i was talking about he said open to on the champ de in 1982 and had grosses higher than superman for a 1983 release by New Line Cinema, the gross was $6 million, an unheard of figure for a nine-year-old film that already had been released on video. Chainsaw would end up seeing, being seen in more than 90 countries, sometimes dubbed, sometimes subtitled, sometimes marketed in an almost unrecognizable way. And he said, no matter. After Poltergeist, Hooper was forced back into the independent film world. The only reason, well, we'll get into the next part, but after this film, this he, he basically goes on to say like Hooper, just like all his respect was lost essentially yeah. after this one. Yeah, it's, which is kind of a bummer because he, he directed the hell out of this movie and it made a lot of money, but it was just, I guess it shows the power of like rumors and the, you know, it, it sucks, man. It really sucks because this is a man's livelihood. And it, I mean, and he was never out of work. I mean, like I said, he directed until he died. His last movie, I mean, his last movie came out in, 2013 he died in 2017 but he directed his whole life but yeah he he got forced back into 
doing independent movies after this, and which we will discuss in a few weeks. And then he did a lot of TV shows. And then he did a bunch of made-for-TV or, or straight-to-video garbage horror movies, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a shame. Yeah, I don't mean to jump ahead. It's just interesting. Like, as I'm looking through this stuff, it's just it's like just how much this stuff hits. Uh, I just want to clarify just how much this this does ruin your career, like your yeah. access in Hollywood, like that that people like the perception is reality that the second that somebody questions like your authority on like a film like this well and that's and, why we called this series the tragedy of toby hooper because this is a guy who had all the potential in the world on texas chainsaw made a movie that is considered by many to be the greatest horror movie of all time and he had some bumps in the road here and there but some relative success with the exception of eating alive I mean, salem's lot and even the fun house were relatively successful then poltergeist was huge and this should have made him an a-list director but because of this bullshit article in the LA times that called his credibility into question. All of that was out the window. It didn't matter how good he had done in the past. All of it was out the window. And, and, and going back to the beginning of this episode, when I talked about like, you have to have a little bit of an ego to be a director. I mean, that comes from, as I'm watching it, I'm like to many people, this would probably seem like a guy with ego, but in, in this one interview I watched where, you know, they were talking about the curse and he was talking about the tragedy that was Heather and like all of this stuff. He was like, you know, like I had the, the leg thing and we were laughing about it, but he was like, I'm alive. I'm here. He's like, but maybe, and this interview was probably 2013 or something close to his death. I mean, he's, he's sitting there saying, he's like, I don't know. He's like going back and looking and, and, and just, who else had to deal with this kind of bullshit? He's like, I had to deal with so much bullshit. Every single time I got close, there was so much shit <laughs> that he's like, so I just, uh, he's like, maybe there was a curse. I don't know. We're, we're going to further explore the career of Toby Hooper in a few weeks, but we do want to talk about Dan O'Bannon first because Yes, their their paths will cross in a way that's pretty important, but we want to establish Dan O'Bannon first before we get into those films that they collaborated on. And also because Dan O'Bannon is another guy who just kind of got shafted by the system, man. And so like it's a very it's not the same story, but there 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 are some parallels, you know. It, it's kind of kind of wild. So we're going to talk about that next week and for the next few weeks we'll be diving into Dan O'Bannon's career. Uh if, Again, go to cinemashock.net for all the information on where you can find those films. You can also find all of our episodes on there and links where to subscribe to us. If you do subscribe, we hope you do uh, rate and review and everything as well. You can also follow us at cinema underscore shock. That is on Twitter and Instagram. You can also like us on Facebook. Share us with all your friends, especially if they're you know into this kind of shit, man. If they're into like cool genre movies, we... We'll tell them everything they ever wanted to know about them. <laughs> hey, man, it may sound like I'm like, like laying the whole plot out here for you, but we're just like counting on you to stick through and like want to hear the history of it. Obviously, things aren't going to work out perfectly for Toby Hooper. That's why this series is called The Tragedy of Toby Hooper. But I mean, the thing is, is one of the beautiful parts about this guy is he's a true believer. Like he sticks with it. Like, this is not the end for Toby Hooper. It's just that this whole story is just kind of 
as an artist, it's kind of fucked up, but it's, yeah. uh, it's this guy, you know, like, like Justin said, we're going to jump into Dan O'Bannon here and it's especially important because well, he's important. And then also he's going to cross paths with the man that we're talking about here this week. And uh, these, these guys are guys that have stories to tell. They have things they want to write and they're doing it and they're pushing for it to succeed. And sadly, that's not always the biggest success, which is the bummer, but you gotta, I don't know. It's, it's, this, I guess this is our opportunity to pay respects to the people that despite all the bullshit stuck with their vision and yes. tried to tried yeah. to do something. So you guys want to tell our listeners where you can be found on the internet, if they'd like to follow you along, follow along on your journey, your tragedy. <laughs> <laughs> something for my great, great kids to listen back. It's like, listen to this fucking dork thinking he was doing anything. <laughs> so, so here am I failing. <laughs> Uh, you can follow me at Mr. Todd A. Davis on all the socials. And if you like Star Trek at Computer Resume on all the on all the socials for my podcast, Computer Resume podcast, where we're covering the entire Star Trek franchise for better or worse. The tragedy of Gene Roddenberry. Yep. The tragedy <laughs> of Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> <laughs> the real tragedy begins with Todd's podcast. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Enterprise not, episode one. Oh, you're not wrong. Oh, boy, oh boy. Uh, oh, Gary Horn. I am at, this is Gary Horn. That's with an E, the silent till midnight ladies. Uh, that's, that's my dad joke. Yeah, you've made it here before. It's all right. Yeah, I know. I just like to clarify that my dad taught me that. (laughs) But it is, it feels important to specify with an E sometimes. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I do this podcast and I'm very happy about it. You can find me at This is Gary Horn on all the things. I also do another podcast about professional wrestling over it at TIPW Show. It's called This is Pro Wrestling. So at TIPW Show. And uh, we're doing a whole, like, even if you don't think you know anything about wrestling, if you like what we do here about movies, we're doing the same thing right now about pro wrestling over on that show. So if you ever want to get into it, yeah, deep dives. We just covered like Gotch versus Hackenschmidt. And not not like a boring fuck. I don't know who those people are, but I listened to the first episode a couple days ago and it's uh, fun stuff, Gary. It is really good. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. We, we got into like the Greeks and the biblical side of things, but we get into like the real, like nitty gritty of like the Cardies and the carnivals and that sort of thing. And Frank Gotch, George Hackenschmidt, the original like OG wrestlers. And we try to make it fun. Uh, I do a lot of impersonations of that show. He's and, just as good uh, uh, there as he is here. Oh, yeah. So for better or worse, that <laughs> happens. And uh, so anyway, you should you should check that out at TFEW show. All right. And I'm at Justin underscore Bishop. I don't have any other shows. Just this one. This one takes up enough of my free time. I was going to say <laughs> once enough. <laughs> Maybe one day, if you guys start paying me to do this, I'll be able to do another show. But until then, just follow me at Justin underscore Bishop, where you can see pictures of me on Instagram or mostly my dogs. Until yeah. next week. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny has the keys. Still hate that. It's still doing it. Yep. It doesn't work as like a sign off though. Like a sign off has to be like a, this is something you can take with you the rest of your day. Yeah. Be excellent to each other. <laughs>
Well, listen, how many people the wings lose of their keys? Never lose a feather. That feels like a real patriotic statement to me. Yeah. When when people lose their keys, all they have to remember is that Johnny has the keys. That's not going to help anyone. What if they don't know anybody named Johnny? It didn't. It didn't help her. It didn't help Barbara. I know. They all, all. died. They all died. Yeah.